Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormor and Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Pools. And today we'll be continuing our reread of the Ink Black Heart, this time covering chapters 63 through 67 of part four. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of the Ink Black Heart will occasionally reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. Well, it feels kind of weird right now because we actually don't have any Twitter updates. That's so strange. It feels very weird. She was like, you guys got too many. No more for this one. (laughs) Too much news. I thought we handled all the Twitter news really reasonably as, you know, a group. Calmly, rationally. (laughs) Calmly, rationally. Yeah. We deserve more Twitter news. She's cutting us off. Yeah. Until next month, I think. Are we guessing that the cover and synopsis is next month? Oh, I hope so synopsis as well i'll go insane they come at the same time right yeah they typically do so yeah it feels weird to be starting with no updates but we do have a bit of news that we want to share yeah and i'm pretty excited about it because we have two new posts written by our friend dr beatrice groves that are now up on the blog of our website so Beatrice has written an analysis of the Ink Black Heart in conversation with Milton's Paradise Lost. And she explores through looking at imagery of Eden in the novel, the nature of good and evil, creative power and parody, and the perfect union between a man and a woman, which is the most Ooh. intriguing part. Ooh. And a bunch of other really interesting stuff. So I loved reading them. So everyone go check those out. Yeah, it was great. And we were really excited to get to share this. Yes. Thank you so much to her for letting us do that. Mm-hmm. And it's also to celebrate the release of the paperback of Black Heart. Paperback's coming out. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel the need to buy it. (laughs) I already did. Mm -hmm. Oh, good for you. (laughs) No reason other than to put it with the other ones. Just firm up your stack of, you want to build a small structure out of Corman Strike books, presumably. At this point, it's kind of a shrine, what I have going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's normal. It's not Mm -hmm. as bad as some of the others I've seen, like Bills from Strike fans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when I say bad, I mean amazing. It's amazing. Obviously, it's amazing. I have um, a cartoon drawing of Corman Strike framed on my wall right next to my computer here. Nice. So that's something. I made Strike and Robin on the Wii the other day. That's fantastic. We are perfectly normal in every (laughs) way. We like Corman Strike a normal Mm -hmm. amount. We do. Yep. Perfectly normal. (laughs) That's us. Yeah, I'm just over here looking at my like, let's see, one, two, three, four copies of the series I have on my bookshelf right now. (laughs) Do you have room for any other books or? Other books. Yes, other books exist. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that the majority of my middle bookshelf is mostly strike. I mean, most of my books, actual physical books are JK Rowling books. Normal. Again, totally normal. Uh, My JK Rowling shelf is a couple of shelves below that one and that one is just completely filled all right should we go ahead and get into the q a yes let's do it all right so the q a for this episode is what was it that attracted you to highgate cemetery as a setting so highgate cemetery is absolutely key in this book firstly because the fictional cartoon is about Highgate Cemetery. So it's kind of quite a gothic, strange cartoon that's attracted a cult following and then it gets bigger and bigger. But I was also interested in it as a symbol of a very, very different age. So this is high Victorian, very gothic, um, beautiful, strange. The Victorians, I think, had a very different, certainly a very different attitude to death. 
uh, and in some ways I think a healthier attitude towards death. It was accepted as something that was likely to happen, likely to come. And there were quite ornate rituals around um, grief, you know, you've got to wear black for quite a long time. And I'm not saying I want us all to walk around in widow's weeds, but at the same time, acknowledging loss and even being able to show that you are grieving, I think, which remains in many cultures, it's, but it's really disappeared from our particular culture. I think there can be value in that. You know, you're signaling to someone that you have lost, have lost someone important to you, and that's not necessarily an unhealthy thing. So I think we maybe look at somewhere like Highgate Cemetery from our current age and think, well, it's maudlin or mawkish or a bit odd almost a deification, um, a romanticization of death. And there's that certainly in Highgate Cemetery. And I was also interested in the Victorian age as exemplified by the cemetery in terms of connection and structure in life. Now there are many, many, many things that were bad about Victorian society and we could, we could spend a day or two listing them. At the same time, I'm examining the disconnect of the modern world and why people go into a virtual world, possibly to find validation, friendship, connection, and even status. And the Victorians were very aware, I think, of all of those things. And I think it would have been, in certain classes, difficult to feel anime, this disconnect. But of course, that really is where the concept of anime began, because as industrialization came along and people were given jobs in which it was hard to feel a great sense of pride because you were you were almost being treated as part of a machine. So it was just this really nice juxtaposition of a very Victorian place um, that has so many meanings to me and I think to everyone who would visit and our current age, which is so very different. You know what I just thought that I really love? She has Josh and Edie use Highgate Cemetery as a setting for the Ink Black Heart when it's a real location, just like she herself does in the Strike series with all the locations that she uses. Yeah. It's just fun. We're going to talk later about the Ink Black Heart fan reactions to visiting Highgate. And while the reactions aren't all good, it's really fun for me to see these fictional fans getting excited <laughs> about visiting a location from this thing they love because it feels like something all of us in the fandom can relate to. Completely. I went on my honeymoon to visit the Tottenham and Denmark Street. Again, very normal people. Normal. But yeah, I'd like to think I'm better than these ink black. No, I'm the same. Yeah. It's me. Hi. We're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely the problem. Anyway, I love that she talks about the old-fashioned displays of grief, like wearing black to signal that you've lost someone, because you can see that she put some of that in when Grant Ledwell talks about Edie's funeral in one of these chapters that we're doing mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. He thinks that the proper way to grieve is to wear black, but his grief is false. The people who knew Edie better and her fans wore yellow as a tribute. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I can just see that some of the inspiration is there, and she played with that. Yeah, I think so too. You mentioned Grant's lack of real grief and Victorian mourning rituals. It makes me think of the way that in this period, so your level of mourning was prescribed by your familial relationship to someone. So the closer you were related to them, the longer you had to wear mourning for. But, you know, as we see throughout this book, it's not necessarily blood ties that dictates your grief. Because we see Zoe, who never met Edie, but is still devastated. Yeah. She wouldn't seem to have the right or the responsibility to wear that visual signal of grief. And I guess what I'm thinking is that Joe talks about how these Victorian structures and rituals surrounding grief were in some way healthier. 
than ours. And you know, that might be true. It sure might be morbid to fixate, but it's better than ignoring death, pretending it doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Um, and I think in these chapters, like you said, we see the sort of modern updates, wearing yellow, acknowledging the grief of those who really cared, like Zoe. And they combine this sort of embracing of grief with our own cultural mores. I guess it just makes me think in general of all the characters in this book and their reactions to Edie's death and the very different attitudes we get ranging from Kia saying it's okay not to be sad because Edie was terrible to Mill mm. saying her death was a fulfillment, whatever that means. And then to people like Josh, Rachel and Zoe. Yeah, I guess I can reiterate that I like the focus on Highgate Cemetery and her response as a place that sort of stands in for and, and symbolizes the Victorian age as a whole, because mm-hmm. that Victorian influence really runs through in Black Heart, like we've talked about. So from the epigraphs to the way that the modern social and technological trends kind of echo the same kind of things in the Victorian period and the damage that that can cause to society. And then the emphasis on illness and sickness, the exploration of the social condition, which feels like a Victorian novel kind of thing to do. I guess I think it just works. It works really well. It's almost like she's a really good writer or something. I know. It's so weird. Yeah. I love the way that she weaves the Victorian stuff into the book. That's really awesome. All right. Should we go to chapter 63? Yeah. Diving right into it today. So for chapter 63, and we've been waiting for this one for a while, Strike and Robin interview Josh Blay. The epigraph. Behold the agony in that most hidden chamber of the heart where darkly sits remorse. Now this one in the book says that it's Arabella Stewart by Felicia Hemmons, but this is one of the misattributions. So it's actually Cathedral Hymn by Felicia Hemmons. Ah, if you want to see more of those, there's a blog (laughs) post on our website where you can read all about it. (laughs) Nice, Ken. (laughs) At least it was the right author this time. A lot of them were. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was only one that was completely wrong. Yeah. But this one seems pretty straightforward to me that Josh is carrying around this intense remorse for everything that happened with Edie. Mm -hmm. Not just her murder, but his own behavior. He has a lot of flaws, but you can feel the agony he feels over them in this chapter and all of the things that he wishes that he had done differently. Mm -hmm. Also, every time I read this epigraph, I'm fooled by the first line because my mind instantly thinks, behold, the agony is saying, look at the agony he's in because of his situation. But it's almost more sad that that's not what it means. It's the remorse he's feeling. That's his deepest pain right now. Yeah, you're spot on with that bit about remorse. The rest of the poem is really about divine forgiveness, the power of the confessional to restore the soul. There's much more, you know, God in the poem than there is in the chapter. But still, Josh here is making a confession in this chapter. And I think that does help him. I hope that Josh can forgive himself one day. I hope so, too. Starting off this chapter, we're already starting to kind of draw parallels between Josh and Strike here, where it talks about how Josh's hospital room reminds Strike of whenever he was at Selly Oak after he lost his leg. And it says, Blaze's blank, withdrawn expression was familiar to Strike. He'd seen that look before on the faces of men whose attention was concentrated within themselves, where they were struggling to reach an accommodation with the strange new realities of their lives. Perhaps Strike had worn that expression himself as he lay at night beset by phantom pain from the lower leg that had gone forever and contemplated the end of his military career. So Strike immediately goes back in time to Selly Oak, 
But the opening line of this chapter talks about the get well cards on the bedside cabinet. And that makes me think about Strike's future coming up here pretty quickly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a ton of foreshadowing for her at the end of the book. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's anyone who saw Strike being stabbed coming because there are connections between Strike and Josh. And the biggest for me probably is that both of them make some pretty big significant changes or realizations about their own behavior while in the hospital. They both really do. It kind of makes sense, given that the overarching journey for Carmen and Robin in these books is healing, and they do that in hospitals. Seriously, though, significant revelations in hospitals is shaping up to be an actual theme for Strike, because first we've got his Kairos moment with Charlotte, which was like a false revelation. Yeah. And then, as we talked about, we get the moment when Robin shows up for him and Jack, which is a moment of hope. And then finally, at the end of this book, he gets his awakening. And it's funny because Strike hates hospitals, but maybe it's the place that puts things into perspective. I feel like maybe part of the reason he hates hospitals is because they make him (laughs) put things into perspective and he doesn't want to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds very strike. Oh, bless him. I like a lot of things about this chapter, but one thing that I really like is how Strike responds to Josh's self-pity here with his own experience with nerve damage, which honestly is super valuable. It is valuable. It's a nice touch to have Strike and Josh connect like this. And it's also smart of Strike to be forthcoming about his leg because I think it helps Josh trust him. During this interview, it talks about Josh's passcode because it's 667752. Does anybody know if this means anything significant? The only reason why I'm bringing it up is because I'm thinking about how in Harry Potter, in order to enter the Ministry of Magic, you'd have to type in on a telephone 62442, which spells out magic on a telephone keypad but I wasn't really able to find anything I was able to find like a color code that was like a really pretty green color but that was about all I could find I love that you thought of this because it's the kind of obsessive fan level I think we all strive for (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud to serve (laughs) yeah I had a look too I can't find anything that stands out either I even tried a website that will tell you if a number spells something on a phone keypad no results i guess it just means nothing unless someone else has an idea maybe it meant something to him and Edie. maybe like they had six and seven in common somehow and then their difference was five and two i don't know how that would be though <laughs> yeah oh so, no <laughs> i've got nothing either the worm is not a penis you guys <laughs> the passcode is just a passcode. passcode is just some random numbers oh man anyway moving on during the course of this interview we get to see these direct messages that Anime sent to Josh and yeah. the ideas that Anime keeps messaging him are fucking atrocious. Oh my God. <laughs> so bad. I feel like every fandom can relate to bad fan <laughs> plot ideas. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's another reason why it's so funny that Anime has such bad ideas because he thinks that they're genius. No, oh, I wish we could all have the confidence of a sociopathic teenage boy. 20 something. Oh shit. I always forget. I keep thinking he's younger than he is. I don't know why. Uh, Let's talk about some of these ideas, though. Yes. The first one was that Hardy should start murdering again and stabbing people in the cemetery. Uh, Which, I mean, looks like he lived out that fantasy. Yeah, yikes. It's such a clear indication that Gus has completely missed the point of the whole cartoon. 
literally we haven't even seen the ink black heart and we could tell you that's entirely wrong for hardy's character arc it doesn't make any sense exactly Mm -hmm. hardy's trying to be more than his owner was his whole point is that he doesn't have to be evil god Mm -hmm. it makes me think of the people i see on the internet who comment to joe that they don't even like strike as a character because Mm -hmm. whatever they say he's grumpy not good enough robin whatever Mm -hmm. every single time i'm just like wow you're missing the point aren't you you yeah. don't get him, do you? I don't get people who read the books who don't like him. If you don't like yeah, him, stop I... reading. I know. I keep reading the books. I like him because he's grumpy. I don't really think he's that grumpy. No, but I like it when he is grumpy sometimes. Sure. It can be endearing. I find it charming. Relatable. Yes, exactly why. Whenever it talks, uh, Robin's thinking about how his mood becomes more... When he's hungry? <laughs> well, what that he's more easy to be around whenever like he's been fed. I mean, yeah. Same. Big relatable. Who doesn't relate to that? Are there some people who just can be hungry and not fall into a rage? Slightest provocation? I don't, I don't know. Doesn't sound real. Anyway, back to anime. Yeah. There are a lot of suggestions that I think suggest that we're looking for an incel. Yeah. The one about Paper White needing to be tricked into agreeing to a date with Hardy or be locked back in her coffin to punish her hubris. Ridiculous. That's creepy. There's one about a situation where Hardy flips it and now rejects Paper White, which seems like some sort of incel fantasy. Mm -hmm. There's one about Lord Wordy Grob should bury Lady Wordy Grob and look for new bones to jump. The fact that anime writes good, funny line about this terrible, (laughs) gross, barely even a joke is absolutely wild to me. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what I mean? There's a trend in his thinking. Yep. I think these ideas really should have pointed us in a very specific direction. Yeah, absolutely. If one had been paying attention. Uh, Right. Which one was not. That's our constant. Yeah. You should have seen this. If you were paying attention, not us. Yes. I was busy thinking about Strike being, you know, sweet. How am I supposed to pay attention to the plot? She does this on purpose. No, she actually does. Yeah. I'm still, you know, holding out that I think that she hid a lot of clues in chapter 58 of Trouble Blood. The Gillespie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're yep. all, she thought we were all going to be distracted. And we and, were, but. And we were for several read-throughs. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> not the seventh time I read it. Then I saw it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So speaking of trends in anime's thinking, you can really see Gus's sense of superiority growing here in the DMs, especially <laughs> from like 2014 on is mm-hmm. just wretched. It's one thing to have the opinion that the thing you like could use some fresh ideas but it's another to think that that fresh idea is yourself as a fictional character (laughs) right can you imagine being like hey joe you know what would make these books even better me oh my god First of all, I would hate to see Joe write me as a character because all of my flaws would be right on blast and it would be (laughs) awful. It would be the scary thing about, well, one of the scary things about meeting her. Yeah. I have to imagine that every person she meets, she thinks about... How would I describe this person? Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know if that's true or not, but. Don't describe me, Joe. Your descriptions are too good. I can't handle it. I know. (laughs) Unless you want to make me strikes next girlfriend or something. Oh, okay. (laughs) Feel free to describe that in great detail. God. Please don't actually do that. We don't want any more. We're good on that. But going back to Enemy's idea, the audacity is off the charts, especially because his suggestion is that Enemy shows up to announce Ledwell's departure. He yeah. literally wants to replace the creator of the comic with 
himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see why Josh believes that anime's the killer because whispering, I'll take it from here, is what anime's been proposing. Also, I love that he casually references his character's appearance in-game here because he clearly assumes that Josh is secretly in the game and sees him and knows what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, that oh would be God. equally as nuts as thinking J.K. Rowling reads or listens to your fan projects. So I still hope she listens to our nonsense. I think <laughs> it would entertain not. her enormously. No, she'd be laughing at us. Towards the end of this series of DMs, there was something that struck me as kind of funny. There's a bit here that's in Greek. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was funny that of the people in that room, of course, Strike is the one who knows a little bit of Greek. Right. Of course he does. Of course. Yeah. I wonder if someone told him he wouldn't ever be a sophisticated gentleman if he didn't learn Greek. <laughs> probably (laughs) just a bit earlier it says that josh is almost willing strike to condemn him and it's Mm -hmm. kind of an interesting mix for me of josh being hard on himself but also having self-awareness because he Mm -hmm. says things like he didn't block anime on twitter because he didn't like being told what to do and he's giving himself a hard time for believing the dossier that yasmin brought him and the reason i say that he's being hard on himself is because i don't think it would have prevented the murder if he had blocked anime And it's not his fault, but he does have flaws that contributed to the overall circumstances. So it just must be really hard to be forced to realize them in this way. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I agree. It's not Josh's fault that Edie is dead, but I can see why he blames himself for so much of this stuff. Yeah. But really talking about the parallels coming up between them, Strike should definitely count himself lucky at the end of this book that revelation isn't nearly as brutal as josh's yeah i think about that too this next bit makes me a little bit sad where josh is thinking about how he doesn't think that he's going to be able to be of much help to the investigation because he thinks that he would have either been too drunk or too stoned to remember considering everything i think that josh actually turns out to be surprisingly super helpful Mm-hmm. Um, in giving them insights. Imagine how much more he could have told them if he had been a bit more sober because he does come off like a reasonably smart and decent guy. You know, he has insights into people. He just needs to get his act together a little bit. That's all. And the part where he says that Edie also told people things and didn't remember. Mm-hmm. I believe him because I can't remember who I tell things to half the time. And I'm sure I'm repeating stories yes. all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Which I think means I'm turning into my mother. Oh, no hashtag <laughs> relatable on both counts oh my god uh-huh. but yeah frankly it's a miracle if i do manage to remember something i've said i have no idea you tell me i've said something on this podcast and i'm like did i, I have zero recollection of ever saying that did it really happen there's recorded proof but i don't know <laughs> there was one time you were like i didn't say that and then i sent you the clip and i'm like oh my <laughs> god i said that jeez honestly same i think it's possible that our brains may taken that philosophy from ted lasso about being a goldfish maybe (laughs) a little too literally yeah maybe what's a fish that has less memory than a goldfish because i'm that fish dory i'm dory oh no (laughs) (laughs) yeah that checks out actually so next strike asked josh about his theory that anime is nils's son bram and then we get some backstory on what happened to bram's mother and then some of bram's early life what bram saw is absolutely horrifying and is also a bit of a red herring here if you're still considering him as a suspect for anime and this is actually one of about a half a bajillion red herrings it feels like when it comes to bram it makes me wonder a bit if some early traumas can just 
break a person completely. Is there enough therapy in the world that would fix what happened to make him like a functioning safe member of society? Or can a person be so damaged by the trauma they face that there's nothing that can actually be done to bring them back from it? I definitely think people are fixable. Mm. I don't think it's the level of trauma that determines who you'll become, but what you Mm -hmm. do with it. Yeah. One of the best things I've heard, and I don't remember where I heard this, but it's that the things that happen to us aren't our fault, but they become our responsibility. Yes. So in, in the context, it was speaking to an adult dealing with trauma from their childhood. It wasn't their fault, but it was their responsibility to deal with now that they're grown. And by deal with, I mean, therapy Mm -hmm. that applies really well to strike, but of course, (laughs) Bram is a child, so it's not yet his responsibility that lies with Nils. So Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely possible, but it would depend on Nils taking that responsibility to get him the help he needs. And sadly, I think we all know that that isn't happening. Yeah, Mm -hmm. most definitely not. Where the hell was Nils when Bram was locked in a room with his dead mother in the apartment outside? What was Nils doing? I assume that he was already in the UK. Okay, so he just... But I don't know. He just left them. But yeah, that's a good question. Where was he? Being a shitty father, just like he is now. Shots fired. Well, it's going to be his his fault, really, when Bram starts serial murdering. Maybe he can copy Gus and take out the father first and then, <laughs> and then just go to jail and he doesn't hurt anybody else. I mean, that would really be it would be a fulfillment of his life when it nils would think his own death is a fulfillment. would be the ultimate mm-hmm. fulfillment there you go yeah what does nils think his own death does he have predictions about what it would be probably something grand yeah mm-hmm. it's hard to predict what nils because everything he thinks is so batshit crazy it's <laughs> yeah. hard for a normal person <laughs> to try and figure out you know what's going on up there yeah like mm-hmm. trying to understand if kia is lying or not <laughs> nobody knows josh claims that bram set fire to his curtains in North Grove, but then Miriam blames him and says that the fire was caused by Josh dropping a lit joint. Did we ever find out whether this was true or not? I don't think it's ever confirmed because how would we know aside from Bram confessing, but I totally believe this. Oh yeah, me too. It's not like it would have been hard for Bram to sneak in and set fire to the bed because Josh yeah. was passed out, right? He's not going to get woken up. I could totally see it happening. It makes me feel really sad for Josh that he blames himself for so much, but is also trying to defend himself a little bit too, because he didn't actually do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And setting fire is, you know, a sign, like a serial killer sign. Oh, yeah. Setting fire, harm to animals. I think we have a lot of check yeah. marks for that one. Lots of warning signs. I guess that comes up next chapter. Yeah, I guess it does. Big yikes. Josh also says that Bram watching him and Edie through a hole in their bedroom wall is what made him think that Bram is anime. Yeah, and not just this, but also being traumatized by what he'd seen, having a really high IQ, being generally super creepy. Him mm-hmm. watching them through the hole in the wall is terrifying to me because that is some Norman Bates shit right there. It is. I cannot say enough how chilling Bram is as a character because you know this kid is growing up to be a serial killer book 10 the return of bram josh qualifies his answer about bram saying that he supposes that it's an easy answer and then lists a couple of reasons why he thinks that it wouldn't be bram the first thing that he says is that what he and Edie's attacker said about taking things from here as they left it didn't really sound like something that bram would say by this point were you two convinced that enemy was the killer 
because I know we brought it up earlier, but earlier in the book, when he confessed in the game, I thought it might be a red herring and that the killer was someone else. But this conversation with Josh really confirms it was enemy based on his psychology. If I still had lingering doubts. Yeah, I was definitely convinced. I think even before this, I could have been wrong. Yeah. I agree with you that the psychology of enemy really points to him being the one. I guess it was the vile patrol Lordrek thing. That really yeah. nailed, nailed <laughs> that it was enemy, but this is more confirmation for me. Again, I just think it's such a fun way to do this mystery where we kind of know who the killer is, but still not knowing his identity. Yes. Yeah. Something I really liked about this book. While they're discussing Josh's theory of Bram as Anime, Strike touches on Anime's abuse of Edie online, which we can see is a pretty big sore spot for him. It seems like here you can really start to see just how guilty he feels for not having done or said anything. What kind of difference do you think it would have made if Josh stood up for her? I think it wouldn't have made a difference with Anime himself, but it might have mm -hmm. helped tone down the rest of the fandom's abuse. But more importantly, it would have made a huge difference for Edie herself in terms yeah. of her, her mental health, her happiness. Yeah, I'm not sure if we ever learn exactly why Edie and Josh broke up, but maybe if Josh had stood up for her, it could have saved their relationship as well. Yeah. And Anime wouldn't have gotten his perfect chance in the cemetery. Yeah, you know what? I hadn't really thought about the reason they broke up, but I can mm. absolutely see this being part of it. Yeah. It's a big deal when your partner doesn't defend you, when you're being attacked in whatever way. Mm -hmm. It can feel like almost a betrayal. Yeah. I can see how it would change her feelings for him over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Robin then asks Josh about being at the Upcott's place the night before he and Edie are attacked. And during this conversation, they talk about Inigo and what an absolute shit he is. <laughs> I like the way that he's introduced here because Josh just asks, have you met him? But you know what he's really <laughs> saying is you've met that guy, right? You know how awful he is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of the reason that Josh is so loyal to Katya, because he seems to genuinely care about her as a friend, is mm -hmm. partly because of, you know, what a shitty horrible husband she has like if he sees that you know I kind of think that we know that he lost his mom mm -hmm. so it would make sense to me that he might gravitate towards her because of that yes also he certainly seems to be aware of how their relationship is perceived because it says at one point that he's a little defensive about it well that just makes me realize that Katya is definitely going to be like Josh's main caretaker for mm -hmm. the foreseeable future I'm betting she'll move him into the house which is already set up oh. for a wheelchair so that's handy oh once they clean up Aniko's blood oh that was <laughs> Sorry. after the crime scene that... cleanup crew is done cleaning it's great it's so that went set up. from such a nice thought to oh that got morbid really quickly yeah. oh yeah it did a little bit <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh but i bet flavia and josh could be could mentor her with her art he could be an actual brother yeah an actual brother that could be a really sweet relationship one of the notes i have in my ebook is that we've talked about josh being a bad judge of character but he seems to have a really good read on inigo and on bram yeah. especially understanding why bram is the way he is makes me wonder if josh is more just really bad at confrontations and not necessarily that he's a bad judge of character what do you think no, i agree i think that he actually does see a lot in regards to people he's just you know too lazy or avoidant to do anything about what he sees like mm -hmm. cutting people off causing scenes saying yeah. no to sleeping with women that he knows full well are crazy you know <laughs> like a certain other person that uh, we could name yeah which is ironic because it ends up being so much more work and effort to just oh not confront situations i know mm -hmm. tell right? me about it but josh is relatable to me 
Uh-oh. Do we need to have a therapy session? I do need a therapy session. If we can have another therapy edition, that sure. would be great. Yeah. Get Sam on. He's a good therapist. Josh talks about how things got complicated with the Ink Black Heart when they had to get quote unquote professional. Yeah. And we've been pretty hard on him about this. And I don't take any of it back, but I guess it feels a little more understandable hearing him talk about it because at 20 to 25 years old, I can understand how such quick success could be overwhelming. So I guess there's nothing wrong with him wanting this to be a fun hobby, but I definitely relate to Edie more on this where she wants to take that fun hobby seriously and be successful. Yeah. I mean, I'm already talking about Josh being relatable, but I, it makes me horrible. But I relate to Josh here, too, because <laughs> with success brings you know pressure. You've got pressure to keep the quality up, to produce, you know, not to let people down, pressure to compromise your vision or whatever. And sometimes nothing sucks the joy out of creativity or something you love more than like pressure. Having said that, I also don't get anything done without pressure, so I need it to function, and uh, living is a nightmare. Are we still talking about the ink black heart? <laughs> I'm now just using this as therapy for my whole <laughs> life. If any of our listeners are therapists, they could come on and be a guest and talk about therapizing of strike. Ooh. And also give me some free therapy. That would be fun. That would be fun. Oh, that was a digression. But no, I think that I think that Josh and I might have, you know, the similar sort of fatal flaw. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're very different on this. Yeah. I think that the enthusiasm they got from fans fueled Edie more and yeah. opened her eyes to the possibility that could be. Yeah. I like to think that before anime, that was exciting for her. Oh, yeah. And then that bastard ruined it. Yeah, he sure How did. How dare he? Okay, so continuing on with Inigo being awful, one of the things that they discuss is Inigo's infidelity and why he treats Flavia poorly. Because he's terrible? That, that's the short version. Yeah, the short version. Do you think that Josh ever says these things to Katya? I doubt it. It might make an uncomfortable scene. She might cry. What he says to her might get back to an ego. She might get mad at him for interfering. So yeah. it seems more in line with Josh's character to take the easy road and just shrug and say nothing. I kind of also think that he might not want to bring it up because he wouldn't want to talk about her marriage because that could lead to talking about romantic relationships and then their uh, relationship. Mm, I get the mm. feeling that Katja fills a mother role for him, but he's aware that it might be more for her. That makes sense. One other thing. I love how Josh tells them that Flavia is the one who discovered Inigo's affair because she found the lipstick on the wine glass. Yes. I just think there are so many clues that Flavia knows something which would point to one of the other three people in her house. Yes, there is so much evidence that Flavia is a really observant and clever girl and that since the Upcott household is right at the center of this whole thing, Robin and Strike should really be making it a priority to get Flavia alone and talk to her somehow. Also on this point, a timeline note, he says that it was three or four years ago that Katya was taking the kids to North Grove. Is that perfect timing for Gus to meet Edie there and get the anime thing from the window to make his alter ego? Sure. Timeline stuff is not my strength. No. I'll mine, admit. Mine neither. But yeah, could be. <laughs> we know that three or four years ago, Gus yeah. and Flavia were hanging around North Grove with Katya while mm -hmm. Inigo was being a shit. On the same note, I noticed that the very last line of the previous chapter is when Flavia is asking why she can't stay with Robin and Katya says, shut up, Flavia. It just felt like, what does she have to say? Because Inigo tries to push her out of the room. Katja's trying to keep her from speaking. It's not that either of them know what's going on, but it's a clue for us, I think. Do you know what I yeah. mean? 
Yeah, it hundred percent is. JKR is writing ways to enforce Flavia's silence through these yeah. other characters because if Flavia had a chance to talk, Carmen mm-hmm. and Robin would solve the case really, really quickly. Yeah. So Josh admits his own hypocrisy talking about Inigo sneaking around behind Katya's back when he's just as guilty, which leads the conversation to Kay and Niven. And I found a connection of the case with the personal here, at least with the Josh strike connection, uh, with a couple of things that Josh says. And the first thing was that Ed always said, I never wanted to piss anyone off. But if you're going to piss people off, they'd rather be told straight than lied to. I should have ditched Kaya, but I kept it going for a bit because I'm a fucking coward, I suppose. This whole bit has me just looking at Strike like Jim looks into the camera on the office. And then he says, what the fuck was I playing at getting back with her? I walked into this bar in Camden one night and I knew it wasn't coincidence she was there, but I was pissed, miserable about ending it with Ed. And well, she's hot. We've all been there, said Strike, as a memory of Annabelle shimmered (laughs) through his mind. Neither man noticed Robin's slight raise of the eyebrows. I really would have loved to have been inside Robin's brain at this part and know what she's thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. Her raising her eyebrows made me laugh. I desperately need to know what she's thinking. I I can't. I wish that we'd gotten a peek inside there. I do too, because she has no way of knowing how Mm -hmm. Strike got together with Madeline. Or that Strike is relating to Josh being miserable that it ended with Edie to himself being miserable that Robin had rejected him. Oh, he Mm -hmm. is. She can't know that. So what is she she thinking? I feel like Robin might be wondering about whether he did this with Charlotte, actually. Because she still doesn't know the details of that divorce case, does she? Yeah, okay. Mm. I was just thinking about Madeline because that's what it is. But I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I just love that this gives Strike a jolt of insight into his own behavior, though. You know what I mean? He's kind of like, oh, that's exactly what I did. Yeah. You would think that this would give him the kick in the ass to break up with Madeline, right? You'd think he'd be like, oh, wait, maybe I not, you know, keep it going. Yeah, one would think. Yeah, not yet. We're almost there. Josh then clarifies what exactly he said to Kaya about her claims that Edie stole her ideas for the ink black heart so ridiculous the fact that all he said was that he hadn't known magpies could talk and that's what she took as confirmation it either speaks to her being so out of touch with reality or how far she'll go to lie not quite sure which it is but it's one of those both i feel like it's both i feel like kia genuinely believes the lies that she tells she's warped her own perception of reality to fit with what she wants to be true yeah that's the worst chicken or egg scenario ever (laughs) Mm -hmm. she's a bird so (laughs) yeah birds lay eggs yeah i get it (laughs) this next bit i'm wondering just because i've been tossing around this theory about the effect that the death of Kaya's father has had on her. I'm wondering if Kaya having such a penchant for having Josh like swear on his mother's grave, I'm wondering if that gives any weight to that theory that the death of her father triggered a lot of her mental health issues. Seems like a weird thing to be fixated on. To me, the whole swear on someone's grave thing is another example of her manipulation. Mm-hmm. And it's also the ultimate test, isn't it? To see if he's going to choose her over his mother, his deceased mother. Yeah. Yeah. The way she sort of capitalizes on this commonality between them to manipulate him. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Charlotte and Strike because we know how much weight he gave to the fact that their family backgrounds are similarly fucked up. Mm-hmm. How much do you want to bet that Charlotte 
played on that and found ways to emphasize it and found ways oh, to yeah. use it to manipulate him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And it also reminds me of the tests Madeline was giving to strike in the last set of chapters to see if he was still mad. Yeah. You know, but I guess I think people who are emotionally abusive often tend to give these little tests to their partners mm. all the time. Yeah, very much so. Josh talking about the night that Edie overdosed is really heartbreaking to read. And I really liked that Strike picked up on just how significant it was that Josh was the person that Edie was calling while she was overdosing. When they talk about the fact that she called Josh to tell him that she had ideas for the ink black heart on her phone when this is happening, Strike seemed to find this a little odd. But That's funny to me because if either Strike or Robin found themselves in some sort of near-death situation, I can totally see either of them saying something like, listen, I thought of an idea for solving the case. (laughs) Oh my God, they totally would. And I kind of hope that that happens in the running grave now. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Josh's telling of this story is a bit of a contrast to Charlotte calling strike in troubled blood when she was overdosing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with her, it was pure manipulation. That was a Kia call. Charlotte's call, not an Edie call, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. While Josh is thinking about the things that he should have done, I can't help but wonder whether we'll get a scene like this in Running Grape with Strike and somebody else, like, say, maybe Prudence, who can act like sort of a calm, balancing presence for him. Yeah, Mm. the whole time I'm reading this part, I'm just thinking about Strike. And it's Mm -hmm. not that their flaws are similar, because I don't think that Strike is weak or unable to stand up for himself or that he really cares what other people think the way Mm -hmm. Josh does. But it's the bigger picture of realizing your flaws and being open to change before it's too late. Yeah, Mm -hmm. And it's too late for Josh in some ways, especially with regards to Edie. But that feels like a big connection with the end of this book where both men are recovering from a stabbing and opening their eyes to who they've been and who they want to be. It's a huge parallel. And the difference here is that Strike is going to get his second chance, the one that Josh Mm -hmm. can't get. He's going to be able to take action to fix his situation and do better for himself and Robin. That's why I really think that he's going to make such huge progress in the running grave. I think he's been set up by Joe to do that. Oh man, how many days are we? (laughs) Too many. Too many days. Josh talks about the condition that he has where his organs are reversed on the inside and then says that it's the weird sort of thing that Edie would have liked, which is really sad. It is sad. And again, I think you had already mentioned this, Pools, but it does feel like a bit of foreshadowing where Josh gets accidentally stabbed in the lung because that's where Strike is stabbed too. Yeah, I think so. And maybe, maybe it's a bit of a hint that Josh is the mirror image. He's the mirror being held up to Strike. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. That's not just my weird brain? Well, maybe we both (laughs) have weird brains. It makes sense to us. Yeah. (laughs) Josh is being held up as a mirror to show Strike, you know. He really is. What happens when you fuck around? And find out. Find out. Oh, God. No, I do. I do see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's a nice thought. It really is. Okay. And then here's the part that I think got all of us in our feelings so we were just talking about how the weird condition that josh has is the sort of thing that edie would have liked and then josh immediately bursts into tears and then strike without hesitation gets up grabs some tissues and then after some initial resistance helps josh wipe up his face and nose which was really sweet it really was and it makes so much sense that he wouldn't want robin's help because that would feel more like pity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we've seen Robin's thoughts of pity, but we don't really get any thoughts like that from Strike. Right? It says that he's mm-hmm. reminded of being in Selly Oak, 
but there isn't really anything about how he feels about it. Yeah, I want to know how he feels. He can't help but see himself in Josh. And I think that that might tend to make him feel sympathy, but not pity because we know he's not self-pitying right he's extending his sort of buck up it could be worse you can handle it attitude from himself to josh yeah i bet it's so different from any of the other types of support that josh has had so far Mm -hmm. because it seems like most people are rightfully thinking about how awful the whole thing is but strike is the one to come in and say you're going to get through this and i don't think that josh has had anyone say that yet yeah kind of reminds me of polworth's response to strike oh it does the only one to acknowledge that this sucks yeah and that actually ties nicely into my next point which is how i love so much how strike repeatedly challenges josh's self-pity here yeah i guess he knew what he needed in that situation paying polworth forward mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something you normally want to do but i guess no in this case, it was fine and i guess it's good that kia was turned away mm-hmm. and josh isn't seeing her so that Josh doesn't repeat strikes, Tyros moment mistake and continuing bad patterns. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that Kia would be interested in caring for Josh in the way that Katya is going no. to or is. Yeah. It would be a more selfless relationship at this stage. I think the appeal of manipulating Josh would be removed for Kia. Yeah. Because she'd have to actually do, do a lot of care work. Yeah. And, you know, she can't even stand without fainting. Right. She's just not capable. You know, sometimes the body will not allow the heart to do what it wants. Yeah. It's not Kia's fault. But the idea of removing the ability to manipulate is one that often intrigues me when it comes to Charlotte, because Mm -hmm. I know most people think that she's going to have to die in order to be fully out of the picture. But I'm always interested and open to the idea that losing the ability to manipulate Strike will lessen her desire to do so. Oh, that is such an interesting idea. Because I've always thought that Charlotte losing her power over Strike would just make her try harder, like an extinction burst. But... The opposite would be intriguing. And I guess we're going to find out because of what happens later in the book when she realizes, oh, I can't even make him go for a drink with me. What's she going to do in the running grave if she shows up? Yeah, well, it kind of makes me think of a point that Ken's made a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what episode it was, but you wondered, Ken's, what charlotte actually likes about strike like what Mm -hmm. is it that they yeah what what is it that appeals Mm -hmm. to her and for me i think it's just the ability to manipulate him that makes sense like how a cat likes a mouse that you can toy with but then when it's dead the cat loses interest she's the worst i hate that she took this devotion that he gave her and just ah god i just i I hate her it also makes me think of that line where he thinks about the first night that they met and him mistaking her enthusiasm for passion which was just revenge and it just makes me feel so bad for him Mm -hmm. god anyway anyway we're not meant to get in our strike feelings right now we isn't that the whole purpose of this podcast it's the whole purpose yeah. of most of yeah okay yeah you're right come on <laughs> don't pretend i know i don't know what i was thinking okay so this thing that strike says to josh is really inspiring i really like it if you need a reason to keep going right now you should hold on to the fact that you're going to be the star witness at this fucker's trial And if you need a reason to live beyond that, you ought to remember that you were the one Edie called when she believed she was facing death because she still trusted you with the thing that mattered to her more than anything else. 
I love that they're able to give him a little motivation here by telling him how important he still is. And not mm. only with helping put Anime away, but Robin telling him about Zoe and what the ink black heart meant to her. Yes, I'm not going to lie. This bit made me tear up a little. I love that neither Robin nor Strike really get the ink black heart. It's not their kind of thing. No. But they don't denigrate it or dismiss it. They recognize the power that it holds for the fans and the creators. They know that it's important to people. And them telling this to Josh, I think it honestly makes a real difference for him. I really do. I think so too. Josh mentions that Pez came to visit him. And I remember arguing back when we were talking about Pez that he seemed to care because he's the only other one who visited. But now that I'm being reminded that Pez was asking to be cast in the movie... Uh, it's a little bit suspicious, a little bit less uh, caring. Yeah, <laughs> I think that there is a lot of self-interest in Pez's visit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we find out soon that he's been struggling to keep consistent paid work. Yeah. Part because of helping out his father. So the chance to work on the Ink Black Heart again would be pretty big for him. Yeah, it's a bit ick that he did that. Yeah, it is a bit ick. It's a bit vulturey, isn't it? Yeah. Not making a good impression, Pez. Not exactly. I mean, his first impression was memorable. I don't know if it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Robin brings up the stolen drawing of the vampire that Kaya mentions in the letter that she was going to give Josh and the plans for the movie. Hmm. And I just love that Joe found a way to bring up the real life vampire story that's associated with Highgate in the 70s. And Pools, you actually brought that up in our predictions episode. I mean, what can I say? scarily accurate that's me you know what i think is the most interesting bit is that they're talking about how the drawing of the vampire was taken on the night where there was a class Mm. so it could have been anyone but earlier in this chapter josh told them that katya started bringing her two kids around when she came for classes so i think that's a deliberate clue definitely and even if she wasn't still bringing gus he would have had the knowledge about how easy it is to walk in unnoticed when classes were on because he's yeah we know now that he has the class experience. We find out that Josh called Kaya by accident the night before he and Edie were stabbed because Kaya's name was too close to Katya's on his phone. And this is what leads to those tweets that Kaya ended up deleting, right? Yeah, that's really the most unfortunate wrong number he could have dialed. Honest to God, that is why you block and delete your ex's people. I say block, but not delete. You got to have that number for reference. Oh, smart. Is there some feature that you can say, don't let me dial this number? That would be handy. Yeah. Or like, make me confirm that I want to dial this number before I dial this number. That should exist, right? It would be a good feature. Apple, let me know what my royalties are. (laughs) Anytime. I'm free. I was going to say that it might have been better if he had gone to Kia instead of the Epcot's house. But we know that Anami still finds out from Hartella where they're going. So it still would have happened. Yeah. And it's also, it's kind of clever the way there are many strings that connect back to anime so he could have found out in multiple ways because it keeps his identity hidden better from us yeah it does once again joe being a good writer yeah weird this book is so complex i cannot understand how she kept all of these threads making sense and that she said that it always made sense to her the brain on that woman it's amazing (laughs) i got confused when i made our schedule for the rest of this book confused when i walk into another room in my house yeah (laughs) that too oh it's confusing where am i what am i doing (laughs) who am i what yeah yeah that's my general state of existence Uh where did that door frame come from exactly (laughs) out of nowhere (laughs) yeah 
She impresses me daily with her brain. The day that he and Edie are stabbed, Josh shows the dossier to Katia and Josh says that Gus is in his room practicing. Now, this Mm -hmm. has to be a recording, right? Because there's no other way he would have known exactly where and when Josh and Edie were planning on meeting up. Well, again, we know that Hartella told him too, but I do think that it suggests that he was listening in real time because he would Mm want to know what was going on and he would want to know when Josh left. Yeah. I agree. He'll have the recording playing out loud, but I think he frequently will be using those noise-canceling headphones to, you know, do his shit in the game, monitor his bugs. And this plot, if he's listening to the bugs in real time, then he'd be able to get advanced warning if someone's like, I'll go ask Gus something so he can stop the recording, grab his instrument. He might be listening to those bugs a lot. That is super creepy. And also boring. Maybe it's like white noise to him. White noise can be very soothing. Somehow I don't think listening to Inigo is very soothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. When Josh starts to describe the attack, he talks about where he and Edie came up with the idea and that she liked the grave with the pelican. And going back to birds, this makes me think of the pelican and her piety and what it means that Edie bled for the ink black heart, literally. You're right. It's more birds. And I didn't notice this connection the first time through, but she really did bleed for it metaphorically, literally, unfortunately. Uh, You were just talking about how Josh is describing the attack, which leads Strike to make the connection that the person who stabbed Josh and Edie is the same person who pushed Oliver Peach onto the train tracks, aka Anime. What a way to end a chapter, right? Yeah, it's really good. And going back to your question, Pools, about whether or not we believed that it was Anime who killed Edie, Mm -hmm. I think this is the first time we're seeing that Strike believes it. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is the first time he confirms out loud. He's like, I think Anime did this. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that being a significant moment when I first read it. It felt significant. It hit me like, oh, okay, this isn't a red herring. I should actually be paying attention to the Anime thing and not looking for other solutions yeah chapter 64 chapter 64 so in this chapter strike interviews grant ledwell so the epigraph to chapter 64 reads he was glad to have an ear that he could grumble to and half in jest rail at entails deplore the fate of heirs and the misfortune of a good estate and that is from gene ingelow's brothers and a sermon this seems to be the grumbling of Grant Ledwell. Yep. And like you suggested last time, Pools, Maverick probably aren't taking his calls, so he's glad to have Strike's ear to complain to. I get a sense of satisfaction at the idea of him trying to call Maverick and then refusing to pick up to him. <laughs> yeah. Just the humiliation and the powerlessness he feels. Uh-huh. Delicious. And the last line is also perfect for him, the misfortune of a good estate, because he's now inheriting all of this from Edie, but he feels it's bringing him misfortune and i guess in some ways it is yeah i think that you're right and this is very much grant in the poem there are two brothers and the elder is complaining about what anyone else would consider the good fortune of being born to inherit wealth because it means he'll have to sit around all day and it'll make him lazy and useless and he's going to deteriorate and work is a man's birthright and how dare they take it away from him but i feel like grant is trying to put on this attitude that you know him getting Edie's a 
state is such a terrible tragedy and burden. But we all know that he is absolutely salivating for the cash. Yeah, he definitely is. But there are other misfortunes like the online harassment. True. I guess it's just easier to not feel as badly for these Ledwells as yeah. we do for Edie. I have a hard time summing up any sympathy for Grant over here. In the days following their interview with Josh, Robin finds that she can't stop thinking about Josh and his likelihood of recovery, as well as the side of strike that she saw during their interview. Robin can't stop thinking about strike? Weird. I know that never happens. Not like her at all. (laughs) This next bit that I'm about to read really stuck with me. She thought about Strike 2 because she'd seen a previously unknown side of her partner at the hospital. He'd often let her take the lead when sympathy was required in dealing with suspects and employees. Before the interview with Blay, she'd have assumed that if a nose needed blowing or a face wiping, Strike would have expected her to do it. Yet Strike had done it, and done it with precisely the undemonstrative male efficiency Blay had felt able to accept. First of all, love him. Same. Let's just get that out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Second of all, I love this because we've so often seen Strike wish that Robin was with him in interviews to be sympathetic or put someone at ease because she's so good at it and radiates that energy in a way that he just doesn't. But that doesn't mean he's not empathetic because he is. And when the situation allows for him to practice the kind of sympathy that he's good at, he totally jumps in. He's a good guy. Yeah. We like him over here. Robin's reaction thinking about Strike's behavior at the hospital here makes me laugh because I feel like her reminding herself of all of the annoying things that Strike has done recently to keep herself (laughs) from feeling too in love with him is going to be a new thing for them until they get together. (laughs) Yeah. Robin soon became angry with herself for dwelling on that unexpected display of empathy this wasn't the way that you fell out of love and she once again employed the reliable counter irritants of reminding <laughs> herself about strike's new girlfriend and his ill-defined involvement in his ex-fiance's divorce case and i just love the description of madeline and the ross's divorces reliable counter irritants i mean they're very irritating to me so <laughs> <Checks out. laughs> i once again find myself wondering how these things are going to be in the running grave because if he doesn't have these counter irritants what is she going to tell herself is the reason she shouldn't be feeling what she feels Uh, i feel like she's gonna have to really reach yeah actually i feel like his grumpiness jealousy is gonna be off the charts in the running grave that might work maybe i don't know i have to admit something part of me has been wondering if everyone's assumption that strike is going to be extremely grumpy in the running grave is going to be wrong inwardly i know he's going to be in some pain but just because it seems so obvious that he'll be grumpy from quitting smoking and robin dating murphy i almost feel like she's gonna flip it on us somehow because we all assume it yeah that seems like something that she would do the last thing she's gonna do is what we think she's gonna do of course that's what always happens unless she again (laughs) she double bluffs us and and and, yeah i Uh, i was about to lay it all out but i confused myself in my brain (laughs) so i'm just gonna move on (laughs) she's tricky anyway i'm just putting out there that i think it might be possible that he might be different than we're assuming Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. watershed moment exactly strike reflects after the interview and i love this next bit because it absolutely feels like a nod to the ending with her name on the door and strike acknowledging that robin deserves to be recognized as a named partner alongside him retrieving Kaya's letter from the bin digesting the contents at speed recognizing that there was one point 
in there that needed to be clarified with Josh and doing so without fuss or display might not have been the showiest piece of detective work Robin had performed to date, but the incident stuck with Strike as a perfect example of the kind of initiative he'd come to count on from his partner. So she's exceptional is what I'm getting from this. Yeah. I love that they're both reflecting on the other after this interview. It's mm-hmm. funny because when I first read this, I saw the line that said Strike's thoughts were less sentimental. And I remember feeling bummed because I wanted sentimental. Mm-hmm. But these are actually just as sweet and they don't end with him trying to think of negative things. So I don't know. I think they're both really sweet. I really love the opening of this chapter. Yeah, yeah, me too. And then, of course, this dig at Nutley while he's praising Robin in his head is just great. If anything were needed to make him value this rare and valuable quality still more highly, it was the continuing irksome presence of Nutley, whose self-congratulation <laughs> at his own lackluster performance stood in such stark contrast to Robin's unassuming industry. The digs at Nutley are really funny. That's just so well written. <laughs> it is. Every time Nutley is around, I'm just picturing striking like this fucking guy. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes me laugh. Yeah fucking guy i really like when strike thinks about how surprised he was by his own attitude towards josh after the interview because it mentions that he's impressed by josh's honesty about how bad his previous behavior was and how much the depth of his survivor's guilt outweighed his self-pity yeah almost like reflecting on one's flaws and attempting to change is inspiring Hmm. what what that's so weird who the fuck did? I don't know. I also like his thought that Josh is exactly the type of person he wouldn't like with the constant mm-hmm. drug use, the commune life. It's another thing that has me with two big eye emojis over the running grave. Yes. And I'm wondering, yes, you know, what we're going to learn. Yeah, I think that strikes the himself in Josh's situation. Along with, you know, the self-reflection that Josh has did a lot to counteract his dislike of Josh's general type because mm-hmm. not his favorite kind of guy. <laughs> no. Is this the first time we've heard specific mention of Strike's survivor's guilt when it comes to Gary Topley before? Maybe, although it's not a surprise because we've seen him wrestle with the choice he made to save Ansys over him before. Yeah, we definitely have. I think we've seen him mention that side of Topley's corpse several times throughout the books. It's yeah. something that has stayed with him for obvious reasons mm-hmm. the survivor's guilt it might not have been stated outright but like you said it has definitely been implied and we mentioned earlier about josh sort of doubting how valuable the things that he was going to say to to strike and robin were going to be but strike reflects here that the interview had actually shed more light on what made anime tick and so it was actually really valuable Yeah, the messages to Josh were really enlightening to see. And again, it seems obvious that they're pointing to an incel. And an incel with terrible story ideas, uh, which I think is going to rule Pez out as soon as we get to his interview on both of those counts. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point because Pez actually has good ideas and we know that he's not an An incel. incel. Yeah. By no means. No. (laughs) (laughs) He does all right. A while back, we talked about the interview locations reflecting the person they're talking to and strike thinks about the same thing here about the gun and grant ladwell Mm. he thinks the leather bound menus and shotguns reflected idealized masculine englishness but also making strike travel a bit reflects his self-centeredness i think the guns make me think a bit of chisel from lethal Mm. white because he he had some of the only gun we've seen in these novels and it played a pretty big part in the plot but grant's association with the gun is 
it's fake so that's just for show i like the connection between brent and chisel because i i feel like they would have been friends yeah they seem like birds of a feather and they both feel somewhat ashamed of a younger person in their family and treat them horribly yeah while strike is waiting for grant ledwell to show up he gets a call from hugh jacks and we get to see some of his thought processes which kind of cracked me up it reminds me of some of that kind of paranoid logic about Matthew and Morris during Lethal White and Troubled Blood. And it says he'd assumed Hugh Axeman Jax had passed in and out of Robin's life without leaving any impression on it. So she had the man's phone number but wasn't returning his messages? What did that mean? Was Jax hassling her for a date? Or was Robin refusing to answer calls to her mobile because they'd argued reducing the man to leaving voicemail messages at her place of work? First of all, fucking guy. (laughs) First of all, the call is coming through the office, right? So he's calling after hours on purpose because I bet his delusional thinking is is not that Robin is choosing not to call him back, but that Pat isn't delivering his messages. Oh my God, you're right. This fucking guy. Fucking guy. But do we ever determine how he got the office number? Because we know Katie gave him Robin's address. But he doesn't have her cell phone, right? Or he'd call that. So I'm assuming that he Googled the office number. Yeah, Yeah. he must have looked it up. But I bet he asked Pat for Robin's cell too. But there's no way Mm -hmm. Pat would be so lax as to give him her number. No. Bless her. Talking about Strike being paranoid though, I'm probably going to be on the outside here because I know that a lot of people talk about him being paranoid with men being interested in Robin, but... I don't really see it that way. It seems like he thinks that Robin did sleep with this guy on New Year's Eve because of what Midge said. And now five or so months later, he's getting calls from the guy. So he has no way of knowing that Robin despises Hugh Jacks. Mm. It doesn't seem unreasonable to me for him to think that maybe there's been some sort of continued relationship going on. Mm -hmm. But he also does consider the correct possibility that the man's hassling robin for a date which is probably Mm. what he wants to be yeah i like it that he considers the correct possibility drives me crazy he didn't just ask her about it i guess he doesn't want to risk bringing up the topic of telling your best friend about who you're dating because he doesn't have the moral high ground in that discussion but five months is an insane amount of time to be hassling a woman who's shown zero interest in you so it makes sense that that would be a clue about a continuing relationship if they weren't dealing with an absolute asshole. Yeah. I don't think that Strike would take the approach of saying, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I think he'd probably do something different. But I think the yeah. reason why he doesn't ask her is for fear of the answer. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when we talked about why Robin didn't ask what his plans are with the Ross case. They're mm-hmm. both afraid of what the answer is going to be. It's going to be the thing they don't want it to be. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I also don't think that his thoughts in Lethal White or Troubled Blood are that unreasonable either because he's just picking up on little things and he's worried about what it means. Because like I said, Robin does the exact same thing with Charlotte or every time she's worried he's with another woman. Oh yeah, Robin does the exact same thing and it's also hilarious and ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, yeah, I agree about Troubled Blood, but I still stand by my assessment of his thoughts in Lethal White because... Little things he picked up on were not so much little as non-existence. Is having an appointment at a clinic and then not being eager to drive the Land Rover somewhere. And I don't remember any other real things he picked up on. Pregnancy is a bit of a leap for those clues, but... Well, I mean, we've discussed this so many times at this point, but yeah... (laughs) Uh, And like I've said all those times, pregnancy was something that crossed my mind in Lethal Eye. And I have other friends who thought the same thing. So I don't think it's as non-existent as you do. But there were no actual hints that she was pregnant. But that doesn't mean that nobody thought it. Yeah. We see clinic before we see therapy. Uh Uh-huh. 
And so, yeah, I thought the exact same thing that he did. And I know other people did as well. Okay. That never even crossed my mind. I thought, oh, yeah. she's never going to make Robin pregnant with Matthew's baby. No, I, no. I'm not saying that I thought it was really yeah. going to happen. I'm just saying when you say the word clinic to me, that's what I thought of. Oh, not that I thought okay. that it was going to happen, but I, I don't thought, have that association. I, guess. I do. I do. So I thought maybe there's a scare. I didn't think that it was actually going to happen, but I absolutely Ah. understand why Strike would think that. Okay. Interesting. I didn't understand his jumping to IVF, but I can see why he'd be worried about her being pregnant because losing her completely to Matthew and jumping to the worst case scenario, it's what they always do because they always assume the thing they fear the most. Yeah. That's why all of this makes sense to me for him. It kind of reminds me of the same thing we talked about in the last episode with Linda. Their lack of communication when it comes to their love lives is understandable and the assumptions that they make because they're not talking about the elephant in the room. It's leading to all these assumptions. Yeah, they really, I really hope they just need to talk. I've been saying they just need to talk to each other for like four books now. So (laughs) God, let me reiterate for the running grave. Just talk to each other. I'm begging. Mm -hmm. Please, for the love of fuck, just talk to each other. (laughs) Anyway. Going back to the chapter. Okay. So there's this next bit and I just, I feel like I've got to bring it down to the thirst level because it's honestly been non-existent in this episode. I think we're making up for the last one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've been no wrong and dry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's this line where it talks about Strike and Grant meeting each other in person. And it says, whether because he'd forgotten that Strike was bigger than he was or for some other reason, the aggression Grant had displayed during their phone call wasn't quite as evident in person. I wasn't sure where you're going with that, Ken. Talking about Strike size, I get it. Okay. Yes. But uh, I'm pretty sure that that's the uh, the BDE that's doing it. And you can interpret BDE however you want. I feel like it will still work regardless of what interpretation you go with. Sure. <laughs> Grant talks about Heather being really worried about the online harassment and that it's probably just because she's hormonal from being pregnant. And I remember thinking, finally, someone's taking the threat of anime seriously because I can imagine Gus turning his anger towards her if he felt like it. Yeah, totally agree. Physical anger, not just physical, yeah. online. But of course, Grant blames her perfectly reasonable fears on hormones because he's just that kind of guy. And they definitely would have made it worse. But that well, doesn't yeah. mean it's not valid. Exactly. Having flashbacks to a year ago. <laughs> Grant talks about the news that Hardy is being turned into a human for the adaptation that Maverick is doing and the backlash that he and Heather received as a result. And his attitude towards Edie's estate is just as distasteful here as it was when we first met him. Yeah, he's so bad at hiding his greed and his complete lack of care for Edie as a person. Is he not even trying? Also, the idea that he thinks a mainstream audience wouldn't watch a movie with a heart makes no sense to me. No sense at all. Let's remove the fundamental core concept that made this cartoon incredibly successful. I don't get it. Oh, movie execs. (laughs) Grant tells Strike about the anonymous phone calls that they've been receiving telling them to dig up Edie's body. Mm -hmm. And the second one that he mentions where he notices that there was a voice changer used was definitely Flavia. Was Mm -hmm. Flavia the first one as well as the one that Heather answered? I mean, yeah, I think so. I don't think it's ever been implied that anyone else was making the calls or aware of the note, right? Right, right. So it was just her. I don't know why, but I think it's sweet that Flavia tried the lead wills too. Yeah, it is. She's just really trying. Yeah. But the irritating thing here for me is that Grant knows exactly what these calls are talking about. He has that letter 
If he'd given it to Strike in this interview, which he really should have done, they could have narrowed down the suspect pool and solved this case pretty much instantly. I bet that freaked Grant out. Oh, the calls? Was calling, knowing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking about the letters. Oh, yeah. yeah. When Strike asks about who knew that there were letters in the coffin, this is where Grant slips up and says it and not them and letter instead of letters. Oh. I'm just amazed that Strike picked up on this and remembered it obviously i know it's a book so of course he's going to but genius i didn't even pick up on this until just now (laughs) when you said it grant drinking glass of wine after glass of wine it reminds me of i think waldegrave yeah definitely waldegrave who also picked a traditional english masculine place to meet oh there you go i remember because strike wants to know what robin would have thought about it yeah there are some shades of him in this yeah, a little bit. Although Waldegrave hid his assholishness. I think it came out with his, his wife. Boy, it sure Remember did. Remember that? That was mm-hmm. scary. Where's Grant? He's just letting it all hang right out for everyone to see. Grant says Josh has been making things more difficult for him and says that Josh called Maverick to tell them not to turn Hardy human because it's not what Edie would have wanted. Good for him. Right. Yeah. Good for him. Just as a timeline question, this was right after his interview with strike and robin so this would have been like within the past couple of days maybe yeah i think so so according to the strike fans timeline they interview josh on saturday may 30th and this meeting with grant is on wednesday june 3rd and grant said he called on monday which means two days after strike and robin interviewed him Mm. and yeah plus strike even wonders then if he and robin made a difference which is so nice it is Mm -hmm. because i do believe that they did make the difference they did Grant thinks that Josh is doing this for money to make things difficult, but we know he's not. He made that phone call for Edie. Yeah, and I also like to think that maybe the original passion he had for the Ink Black Heart may have sparked up again after hearing that story about Zoe. Oh, yeah, maybe it would have. I love that when Grant says things have worked out well for Josh with regard to the Ink Black Heart and Strike responds with, I can't see how things have worked out bloody well for a man who's paralyzed from the neck down. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks, and this is my favorite part, Grant wasn't his client. He wasn't obliged to treat the man's opinions with respect. Just <laughs> chef's kiss. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I love him in that moment. <laughs> Me too. I was so glad that Strike said this. And it is really easy to dislike Grant Ledwell, and I do. But mm-hmm. I am also trying to remind myself that he believes the letter that Anime wrote is from Josh. And it was really disgusting. So while I dislike him, I can't completely blame him for being angry at Josh. And his level of anger seeming so out of place tells me that there's something going on that we're missing. Mm -hmm. And Strike is picking up on that too. I think it's really obvious that he's seeing it. Yeah, I need to remind myself of this too, because my first impulse was to say that Grant is just judging everyone else by himself. But you're right. He thinks that Josh said disgusting things about Edie. But again, I'm landing on, why would he not just bring the letter to show strike? I guess he doesn't want to admit tampering with evidence because Mm. it definitely seems relevant to the case. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's seemingly not related if it's from Josh. Mm -hmm. Do you know? I think that's why he has a hard time admitting that Josh can't be anime, even though he knows something's off he just can't make sense of it yeah he doesn't seem like a really sharp smart guy but you know what i mean like he's Mm -hmm. thinking that josh is somehow extremely cruel and in line with anime's character because of the letter that anime wrote but But he he knows he couldn't have done it but he can't make sense of it yeah yeah he needs a brilliant detective to come in and make sense of it i think we all need that Mm. 
gear. Grant is under the impression that Annamy and Josh's interests coincide and that one of the things that they both wanted was Edie gone from the cartoon. Again, it's one of the things that sticks and strikes mind because it doesn't add up. Especially having just talked to him. Yeah, that's probably why it feels like such a harsh contrast for us because we've just seen Josh and now we're seeing Grant. It doesn't add up for us either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While speaking with Grant, Strike gets a text from Robin saying that she's confirmed that Wally is an enemy and then asked Strike to call her. The thing I love most about this is that her text, it's a little unclear about who is in the back of an ambulance, Wally Cardew or Robin herself. And I just love how Strike immediately jumps up. He drops his knife and fork and abandons his stake. That is a big deal. A stake? (laughs) Oh my god. That's love right there. My question is though, how was he holding his knife, fork, and phone (laughs) all at the same time? You didn't realize that he had one leg but three hands? Oh, intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) He can do a lot with three hands, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, maybe he moved his knife and fork to one hand to answer his phone. I wish I had a knife and fork here so that I could try that and see if it feels natural. Or maybe Joe just forgot. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes when you're writing, it's hard to remember how many limbs people have. It gets really confusing. (laughs) Limb continuity. (laughs) The limb continuity is so difficult. Back to your point. I agree. I love Strike immediately running to call her. Even though the fact that she's texting and says, call when you can, suggests that it's not exactly an emergency. (laughs) No. Maybe he's thinking that somehow she was spotted or something. You know, I sprained my ankle and then, you know, they're on to us or something. Mm. I don't know. It's just Robin. He's just worried. Isn't there a part in Silkworm where Strike is being attacked by Pippa and then Robin hears the voicemail and she has kind of a similar response? Yep. There definitely is. I believe her fingers were shaking and she instantly starts calling until he picks up. Oh, which was very cute. Although he was being attacked, (laughs) you know, he was. Grant describes the funeral and the people who showed up to Edie's funeral, who are clearly big fans of the Ink Black Heart. I love, and by love, I mean I hate, that (laughs) at no point is Grant moved by the fact that Edie was able to have such a positive effect on so many people that they felt moved enough to come to her funeral, or even how Edie herself wanted her body to be handled after her death. It was all about Grant and what he wanted like he's just uh he is such a dick he is such a dick his only concern is with appearances how people are supposed to behave at a funeral anything outside of conventional is an atrocity to him and actually in this whole bit he reminds me a little of matthew oh. matthew would have had the exact same opinions You're about so this funeral right. yeah. yeah grant is future matthew oh my god and heather's future sarah oh my god yes <laughs> there you go <laughs> I think I'm a little conflicted over the fans showing up, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. I can understand that it's so nice that she touched so many people and being sad over a celebrity you love dying. But Mm -hmm. I don't think that I would have made the choice to go like that unless it was explicitly allowed. Uh, Yeah, as a fan, like you've got to consider the fact that family and friends are mourning the person that they Mm -hmm. loved, right? Yeah. Of course, Edie's family and friends are mostly shits. But the fans don't necessarily know that. Right. You know? It's a tricky thing. Yeah. Grant's attitude towards Rachel here really makes me want to punch him. He's going to have to join that guy from the last episode who wanted to hassle Robin about moving her car. But that field full of painful spiky Legos. Yeah. The only thing I don't blame him for, I guess, is his feelings about Bram at the funeral. Because I think we'd yeah. all. Yeah. That is a grievance. That is a legitimate yeah. grievance. Yes. Now, Grant mentions the boo 
in the church <laughs> during the funeral. Now, is that Gus or who is that? Do we think that was? I don't know. I love so much that Strike was silently amused that Grant got booed because I think we're all amused by that. Mm. Yeah, I know I am very much so. The only reason why I I'm not sure it's Gus is because if he's sitting next to his family, I don't think that he would do that in front of them. Yeah, I agree, and he wouldn't do it without a computer screen to hide behind yeah. either. I'm guessing that all of Edie's friends would have known what an asshole Grant is, or you know. Anyone in the fandom who'd read anime's tweets about him w- would also be likely to boo. So I feel like there are a lot of candidates. <laughs> I bet you, though, that Gus took credit for it in his own head. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, that was me somehow. I'm a genius. I masterminded the boo. <laughs> <laughs> Grant brings up seeing Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, and Pez at the funeral. And I love that, knowing what we know now, that Pez is telling Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, to stop trying to flirt with Rachel, who's it's like, seriously, it's like, who's trying to pick up girls at a funeral? How, how tasteless. You think she'd be too old for him? Oh, yeah. You know what? You're probably right. Are we sure he wasn't trying to talk to Flavia? Oh, yeah. that's gross. Flavia was definitely there. He says that Rachel was talking to the Upcott children. So how chilling for Rachel, though. Talking to Anami slash Scaramouche in person, but not oh. even knowing it until the yeah. reveal, when he definitely knows who she is. Oh, you know she's going to be thinking about that when everything comes out. Oh my god, yes, her skin is going to be crawling. Oh. I feel like Grant's judgment of character here is just as poor as we were kind of insinuating that Josh's was. Mm-hmm. Kind of uh, <laughs> kind of funny that he preferred Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, to Pez. Like, if he only knew. Yeah, That's what happens uh, when you judge people on how well they follow convention. Pez may be some things that I don't really like, but mm-hmm. at least he's not afraid to stand up to a pedophile. That's yeah. a good thing. You know what? I like a guy that hates pedophiles. It sure. is a very yeah. important character trait for me. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a shower. He needs some nice cologne. And, you know, maybe I could look past the rougher bits of personality it's clear that grant ludwell is kind of using the eccentric crowd to justify his negative views of Edie. do you know what i mean yeah Mm -hmm. and strike was saying earlier that he didn't like certain lifestyles but the difference in the way they express it is quite noticeable yeah their dislike stems from very different places and for me strikes motivation is a lot more understandable because of his you know childhood trauma yeah but he also sees much more nuance than grants does and he considers people's situation and motivations when he's judging them yeah so it seems a lot more reasonable all right in chapter 65 we see anime offering a moderator position to robin and then robin visits highgate cemetery as jessica robbins so the epigraph for this one weeds triumphant ranged strangers strolled and spelled at the lone orthography of the elder dead and that is 41 the forgotten grave by emily dickinson i feel like this is describing a walk through the cemetery and reading the tombstones and Mm -hmm. this is the only time we actually go to highgate cemetery in this book which is kind of unexpected when it's such a major setting yeah it is i guess we're there digitally a lot we are yeah but i agree with you the poem describes the sort of loss of history so the grave it's talking about has passed out of memory and only the wind can find its way to this sort of long ago tragedy but nothing in this cemetery highgate seems to be forgotten because the tour guide remembers the story of each grave the tourists listen avidly the ink black heart fans know exactly where Edie was killed it's a contradiction of the poem in a way and maybe talking about the power that creative work has in keeping the memories of these people alive i don't know Mm -hmm. that might be a bit of a reach but yeah 
Highgate. We're at Highgate. Some of us spent a lot of time Google Mapsing <laughs> around before this book came out. Yeah. Who, who was that? I don't know. No one knows. God, I'm just thinking about all the time that we've put into like looking around Cromer and the no, place in between the church. And we don't do that. <laughs> Definitely not us. Totally normal fans. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. This next chapter opens with Robin opening up an email from Strike while keeping an eye on fingers that basically compiles all of the information that we've learned all together. Strike mentions that they're running low on their original suspects. So that's Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, Kaya Niven, and Pez Pierce. Yeah, and also we learned that he likes Pez for anime best. Hmm. I also just, as a side note, think it's great that even though Strike thinks that Pez is the best suspect for anime, he never tries to get Robin to pull back or not go. You know, it's clear that he trusts her abilities there. Yeah, they've both grown so much since Career of Evil, you know, when he was trying his best to keep her away from Brockbank because he thought Brockbank had done it. Robin has grown as a detective and Strike has grown in, in seeing her as an equal and a partner. And yeah. Trusting her abilities. Yeah, I mean, so much has changed since then. You know, Robin was only a year into working for him. She wasn't his partner. The liability was was Yeah, yeah. It was very different. But still, look how far we've come. We started from the bottom, and now we're here, and they still haven't kissed. So... (laughs) He then lists out some potential lines of inquiry, including who knew about the hardy to human change. And he narrows it down to a few people outside of Josh. So there's Grant, Katya, and then Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, and Kay and Nevin, who he kind of lumps together. So in his notes about Grant, he mentions being interested in Rachel and says that any teenager with connections to the Ledwells, the Upcots, or Northgrove who are acting strangely need checking out. Mm-hmm. And he's bang on there since checking out Rachel leads them straight to Morehouse. Yeah. And it's so funny because Gus isn't a teenager, but it's yeah. really close to pointing it's, towards him. It super is. And he mm-hmm. feels like a teenager to me anyway. He does. So I think he counts. Here's the best part about his notes on Katya. He mm-hmm. says, I can't imagine Katya discussing something this sensitive outside her own household. Mm. I wish I would have remembered all the times they talk about the possibility of Gus bugging the house because this is a really good clue when you put it all together. God, you're right. Yeah. Really should have seen it. But also, since they've already, quote unquote, ruled Gus out, he wants to look at Gus's friends. You know whose fault this actually is? This is all Yasmin's fault. For going along with Why? Gus's plan to foil surveillance, for impersonating him, mm. it's Yasmin's fault. There we go. Pin the blame where it belongs. I don't think it belongs with her. Gonna okay. go ahead and say, don't think I'm gonna blame her for Gus. Well, okay. We can't play uh, pin the blame on the Yasmin. Pin the blame on the Yasmin. That's my favorite party game. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a combination yeah. of pin the tail and the donkey and twister because you have to do so many contortions to get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm sure we have listeners who would be happy to play this with me. Not blaming Yasmin for what Gus did. No, just for, you know, how long it takes him to solve the case or something. I don't know. I've forgotten my original point. It's okay. It was nonsense. all right fair enough (laughs) anyway it feels like we're all circling around Gus but just not pinpointing it you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's because he was too good of suspect a minute of actual serious consideration and then I've been like oh shit it's Gus so while I was writing down everything that Strike has 
sent to Robin here, I have to say that these recap emails that Strike sends to Robin in this book are really, really handy for reminding us of everything important that we've learned. Because otherwise, yes. I don't think I would be remembering <laughs> yes. like half of this. They are so helpful to the reader, especially in a book this complex and long, which is, of course, I think why Joe puts them in here. I know that some people take notes as they go to try and figure it out. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. That's just not me. That's never going to be it. me. So I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you, Joe, for trying to make this easier on us. I pretended the one time that it was going to be me. Yeah. And then, yeah. It, it was not. It, it was not. I actually started with this book and then quickly gave up. I think yeah. after chapter five, literally. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't wow. take okay. long. <laughs> I know myself. I know my flaws. There is no point in even attempting. It's not going to happen. But I admire people who are able to do that. I don't understand you, but (laughs) I'm impressed by you. There's this part that was kind of funny to me where Robin is thinking and it says, as she stared up at the squares of glass, which had turned to quicksilver in the spring sunshine, she pondered the possibility that Annamie was somebody they hadn't even considered. And honestly, given how much they're talking about all these other people, I mean, honestly, she's kind of right. Well, I don't know. I mean, they have considered him. Yeah. I mean, Strike has, Strike considered, has him. considered him a great deal. Robin has been very difficult with considering him. Yeah. I'm tearing my hair out at obviously because it is. I know they can't know that yet. This is not yeah. the end of the book, but oh my God, it's so obviously Gus. Robin is supposed to have the rest of the afternoon off after her surveillance of fingers, but of course, even when Robin's not working, she still ends up working. But she decides that she's going to make herself up as Jessica Robbins to go have a look around Highgate Cemetery. Can I just say, I really love that these two are both total workaholics because they're never going to be able to have a relationship with anyone but each other. Darn. They really should just give in and spend their days off together snooping around whatever their latest case is. It's inevitable, guys. Come on. Robin acknowledges to herself that part of the reason why she wanted to go to Highgate was because she wanted to see the place where Josh and Edie were stabbed and that she hadn't told anyone because she was afraid of being told that she was being over emotional or morbid do you think that this is something strike would have actually given her any grief over or do you think he would have understood her need to see yeah i don't think that he would have given her grief that's like a matthew sort of thing yeah i think i would think that he would understand that i agree he would he's done the same thing a bunch of times i think this might be the thing that robin does where she makes assumptions about Mm. what he would do because i just can't think of any time where he's giving her a hard time over her emotions or anything can you am i missing a time i don't think so no i don't think so either matthew definitely matthew definitely did i think she's just you know lingering trauma from that asshole i think we all have that yeah now this next part makes me laugh it says peering into the cracked mirror to check her hazel contact lenses she remembered ilsa's words at dinner honestly you're just like him the job comes first But as dwelling on her compatibility with Cormoran Strike was something she was making a conscious effort not to do, Robin pushed that thought firmly out of her mind and headed back into the office. Oh, Robin. I love any callback to the chapter with Ilsa. Yes. But have you noticed that since chapter 60, where he helps her move, she's been having more of these kinds of thoughts, you know, first about Josh and now this. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I mean, it makes sense, though, because what she felt for him showing up like that to help her was presumably incredibly strong and it's bringing stuff to the surface that she would have been able to shove down when she was more annoyed with him and when he doesn't wasn't doing you know 
amazing things amazing things like oh you know what i just thought i bet every time she walks by that plant or every time she oh my god that it waters it she yeah oh yeah no wonder she's having trouble jeez i really hope that the plant gets brought up again in it had better it had better yeah i want to know how the plant's doing (laughs) yeah i think we all do the plant is going to be what breaks robin and murphy up (laughs) calling it now Where'd you get the plants? Just the love of my life. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Or Murphy has to take care of the plant and accidentally kills it. (gasps) Oh, Oh, hell no. Uh Uh-uh. Murder. Justifiable homicide. I'll kill him. (laughs) See, I'm I'm just thinking of all the ways in which Murphy can see something that he robin's trying to hide you know so mm-hmm. if he asks her about the plant and maybe she you know doesn't look at him or oh strike got it but she blushes a little or something do you yep. know what i mean little tell i'm always yeah. looking for little things that he's gonna pick up on yeah that's kind of what i'm thinking what i'd like to see but i don't know i'd love to see anything i just want to see the book robin's outfit here is jessica robin's just sounds like chef's kiss so good. I wish Strike would have walked in because you gotta wonder if he likes the bright red lipstick and the black suede jacket. I think, I think so. <laughs> I think. Well, he loves it when she disguises herself. Oh yeah, you know that's canon. I think he'd like it a lot. There's an exciting development as she's getting ready here. Anime opens up a private channel with Buffy Paws and offers her the moderator position. But of course, this offer isn't straightforward by any means. So any contenders for this position have to do a timed test covering 42 episodes of the Ink Black Heart with 15 seconds to answer each question. You know, I have to say, I'm kind of on board with this idea for moderator <laughs> position. Just I in my totally, experience. Yeah. I totally would be too. Poor Robin is going to have to do a hell of a binge watch though. Yeah. And it's not as much fun when you don't actually like what you're binge watching. There's also a bonus question, which involves guessing who Anime is. And I think Strike honestly said it best. What an egotistical prick. He says it amuses him to see how wrong people are, but I bet there's also a sort of reassurance that no one really suspects him. wonder what he would have done if Robin threw out Gus Upcott. That would have been amazing. He would have blocked, well, I don't know. What do you think he would have blocked her? Because then it seems like, well, that's the obvious answer. I don't know what he would have done. Gone and killed Midge's ex-girlfriend, probably. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, I always forget that. Yeah, the Buffy Paws is the email address. Yeah. yeah. That would have been awful. Strike calls Robin back for a quick update after she tells him about what just happened in the game. This is such a great phone call between these two. I just Mm -hmm. love reading these just chatty calls about everything. But my favorite bit is when he says that he hopes Pez has the hots for Jessica because I was thinking... Be careful what you wish for there, buddy. Mm -hmm. Right? He's going to be like, not that hot. I (laughs) I wanted medium hot. While Robin is on her way to Highgate, she encounters a group of people who she is sure are the Ink Black Heart fans. Do you think that strike fans are easy to spot out in the wild? <laughs> I, mean, I saw pictures of the meetup last month, so I think I mean yes. the ones carrying the big cutout of Tom Burke are probably pretty easy to spot. Yeah. Well, no, but they had masks of all the characters. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I love it. Pretty easy to spot. Yes. Yeah. If you see groups of people crowding around Denmark Street, they're probably <laughs> oh, yeah. the strike weirdos. Yeah. Taking pictures of like the mural in the Tottenham being like, I wonder if the people in the Tottenham know or aware. They, they have to be, right? They, they absolutely must be. Yeah. It's the Nutter Club. Yep. <laughs> they're back. 
strike. <laughs> it's the strike fans. In the time that Robin has before the next tour starts, she decides to bite the bullet and call Hugh Jacks back. And whoo boy. My jaw dropped further with every single sentence until I was out here like a cobra. Like, what? <laughs> because I could not believe, sir, it has been five months. This woman has not returned a single one of your calls. She dodged your New Year's kiss and ignored you knocking on her bedroom door the one time you met her. Like, how can he be this delusional? The whole thing is awful. I just hate how it makes her feel anxious that she has to do it, shaken afterwards. But I know I've mentioned this before, but him mentioning that he's speaking to his therapist about her is so ridiculous. But man, do I hope that it could be a sign of someone else talking about his feelings for her. To a therapist, to a sister, to Pat. Yeah. I'll take anyone. Yeah. So the phone call ends and Robin is shaken by Hugh Jackasses, because that's my (laughs) name for him. It's a good name. Reaction to her turning him down for a date and then thinks about Murphy's reaction to her refusal of drinks with him. Murphy is definitely looking good here in comparison to Hugh. He seems like a much more decent guy. I was going to ask where we would put strike on the scale from good to bad reactions Mm -hmm. over her rejection, but I don't know. That might be unfair since the relationship between them is what it is you know he's not a guy that she's met once like murphy and hugh jacks i'd say that strike is actually really decent about it he respects a no he doesn't push he doesn't press he might have been a bit distant afterwards but he didn't let it put a permanent wedge between them you know yeah of course i agree and the distance comes from hurt and confusion too you know these two Hearing people talk about Christina Rossetti during this tour is so weird, kind of in a good way. When we have the Rossetti epigraphs in this book, and then obviously the first book is literally named after part of a Rossetti poem. Honestly, it feels like a bit of a fourth wall break. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it is kind of cool. It's like, hey, I know her. Taking the tour, though, is something that I'd like to do if I ever go. I bet Joe did the tour, right? You think? Probably more than once. I bet she'd been able to arrange a private tour. She's J.K. Rowling. Yeah, of course. Imagine you're going on a tour and J.K. Rowling shows up and is on your tour and you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> literally my exact sound I'm making would be <laughs> unhinged. Calm, rational, not crazy human being. That's us. Didn't she say in an interview recently that her kids have a code name for when they spot someone that notices her? Oh, yeah. I think I, I can't remember, remember what it was. I don't remember what it was, though. That would be us. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry about it. I would feel so bad, too. I know, but I could not control my face. It would just be doing things without my input, you know? Oh, boy. Sorry, that got real fangirly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we have much more in common with these Inkblark Heart fans than we perhaps want to admit we do. <laughs> mm, possible. Somehow I find these fans on the tour wanting to be around the spot where Edie and Josh were stabbed much more morbid than Robin wanting to be there. Yeah, I mean, I understand the fans wanting to be there, as we were just saying. But with Robin, it feels different, right? I can imagine her making silent promises that she's doing everything she can. Yeah, but Robin has an actual valid reason to be there. She met Edie. Edie came to her for help. She's trying to get her justice. The fans are just, you know, I don't want to say they're being a bit ghoulish, but maybe a teensy tiny bit. Robin and the group arrive at the grave of Baroness Elizabeth de Monk, which is where Edie was killed. And it says Robin, bringing up the rear, took herself slightly to task for a feeling of revulsion towards the Ink Black Heart fans for wanting photographs of the place where Edie had been stabbed. But was she any better? And I say 
judge away, Robin. Honestly, like I think taking selfies by where the creator of one of your favorite shows was stabbed is super tasteless. I'm conflicted again because I understand the revulsion. Mm -hmm. They're making her murder an entertainment spot, right? But Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is this human nature? Would I be interested in seeing a place where something bad happened? It's like we do the Jack the Ripper tour. Mm -hmm. I get the impulse to want to see the place. I like to think that we would have a bit more respect and understanding for the gravity of it. And this woman who made the thing they loved was stabbed just a few months ago. And getting pictures of themselves standing near where they are. I don't know. It just, it wouldn't occur to me to want to do that, I don't think. No, I I get it. Of course, Mm. I like to think I'd be more respectful and not take a picture of myself there. I guess just if I'm being honest, there's something about this that kind of strikes something in me. You know, maybe it's the fact that I'm into true crime and that could be a bit of a morally touchy thing, or I tend to be a little obsessive over things. <laughs> no, as shit. you know. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I don't think I'd be like this, but I think it's a fear that mm-hmm. you could be mm-hmm. and what that means and why people do this. It's kind of fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's bits of human nature in, in this. Yeah. It's the taking of the selfies that gets to me, that makes me feel like the fans are are self-centered, not actually caring about Edie dying as a person. Well, I mean, what you've just said is a great point. People yeah. tend to forget that celebrities are real people, whether yeah, it's someone you're putting on a pedestal or if you hate them for something they've done wrong. Oh, mm-hmm. But yeah, people are always going to be curious about the dark stuff drawn to the worst case scenario, you know? After this, Pez gets Robin's attention from the hiding spot. And this description where it says Robin could smell Pez through the thin priest t-shirt he was wearing. A strong animal smell, almost but not quite B.O. And she had a sudden intrusive memory of Pez's penis. (laughs) Now, the description of Pez's smell, I don't care that she says it's not quite B.O. But that does not sound like a good or a sexy smell at all. Mm -mm. No, Mm -mm. it really doesn't. And I also just really like that she calls the memory of his penis intrusive (laughs) (laughs) but the ending of this chapter is really interesting because Pez tells her the story about Christina Rossetti not being the only person buried in the tomb it's a family plot right so it's not like they're buried in the same grave right yeah so the story that Pez tells her the other person buried with Christina Rossetti well one of the other people is her sister-in-law Elizabeth Siddell which was the wife of her brother Dante Rossetti so the story is that he buried her with a book of poems that he wrote to her because he was so heartbroken only to later regret not publishing them so they (laughs) dug them up and then he published them true story and now that you say it I'm realizing that it kind of is emphasizing that Edie is buried with significant something or so they think or so they think And that, you know, the voice telling them to dig her up, it turns out to be a really important part of the case. Maybe this is a little hint. Yeah, I think it is definitely a hint. Pointing towards the letters being very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chapter 66. So in this chapter, Robin visits North Grove with Pez Pierce undercover. The epigraph. One of the children hanging about pointed at the whole dreadful heap and smiled. There is something terrible about a child. And that's in Nunhead Cemetery by Charlotte Mew. Now this is almost certainly about Bram, right? Yeah, most definitely. There's mm-hmm. definitely something terrible about a child. Indeed, this child 
Mm-hmm. Yes. The poem itself is so sad. It makes me think of Josh and his pain at losing Edie because in the poem, the speaker is standing in the cemetery after the funeral of his fiance, remembering his time with her and mourning what they'll never have. And he eventually decides to stay to sleep in the cemetery so that her soul and, and all the other dead souls can keep him from being alone. It's really Josh to me. But these lines, yes, these lines in particular... <laughs> Bram is the creepiest child and smiling at death for sure. The beginning of this chapter opens with Robin and Pez walking back to North Grove together from the cemetery. Can I say that I would totally read Pez's steampunk Victorian time traveling Undertaker comic because it sounds awesome. And as I was saying, this should immediately rule Pez out as enemy, given the shittiness of enemy's ideas for Blackheart, (laughs) right? When Pez and Robin arrive back at North Grove, Pez makes to go upstairs and drop off the sketchbook, but both of them run into Nils de Jong. And I have to say, this outfit that Nils is wearing, the combination of the smock-like top with the cargo shorts, just fashion icon over here, Nils de Young. Yeah. I mean, I guess awful. that's what you wear if you're <laughs> painting or making terrible collages. I, I guess, guess so. so. And then we see Philip Orman show up and he wants a word with Pez about Edie. It's a bit lucky that Robin didn't do the interview with Philip Orman with Strike that one day, because even though she's in disguise now, he might have recognized her. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. That is lucky as hell. Or written that way, but yeah. (laughs) I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but did either of you ever suspect Nils? He seems a little too in his own world to me. No. By this point, I was completely zoned in on the Upcott household. Although the wrong upcots but and yeah. also nils is a terrible artist so i don't think he'd <laughs> actually be capable of making the game yeah god imagine what it would look like if he had designed it god oh. so bad <laughs> terrible and speaking of that robin's judgment when she visits nils's studio is so funny <laughs> it says rising out of the ankle deep litter like weird fungal growths were a few examples <laughs> of nils de young's art they were all so aggressively ugly that Robin, <laughs> wading through the detritus on the floor as she approached one of two low armchairs, decided that they were either works of genius or simply dreadful. <laughs> really aggressively ugly. Oh, Robin, I love you so much. The only thing that could have made reading that more enjoyable is if Shrike had seen them too, because they would have laughed about them together. Oh my <laughs> god, I wish she'd taken pictures. <laughs> they would not have been able to make eye contact because they both nope. would have laughed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> strike would not have even considered the possibility that they could be genius though he would have firmly told her no they're shit so nils mentions his missing cat and this is here to remind us of that tweet the anime posted with the cat earlier in the book right yeah i think it's all part of the cat red herring and making us think that it's someone who lives at north grove but i kind of just suspect that bram did something to the cat oh, right jeez mm-hmm. oh i really hope Bram didn't kill the cat. I think there's another red herring here that's fun with this piece of art that has phrases written in Greek and Latin because, of Mm. course, we've now seen that anime uses both Greek and Latin. I think it's also connecting Nils with the Brotherhood of Ultima Thule because it says Thule Ultima, which (laughs) sounds like the worst Harry Potter spell ever. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a really terrible, like, Street Fighter game. (laughs) (laughs) Thule Ultima! Begin! Nils shows Robin the bizarre collage he's done of Edie, 
And I'm wondering, did either of you look at the picture that he says that he used to reference whenever he was making that picture, the Dante mm-hmm. Rossetti? I did. And the weird thing is that's who I was just telling you about in the last chapter, who Pez is saying is buried with Christina Rossetti. So her brother's wife, the painting he's referencing, Vita Beatrix is a painting of his wife, Lizzie or Elizabeth Seidel. And it's interesting to compare her to Edie because what I found said art was a big part of her life. She was a model and her most famous depiction is of Ophelia, Mm -hmm. but it said that she dealt with depression and addiction and died young at 32. So it's easy to see how maybe JK Rowling used her as a bit of an inspiration for Edie. She was also an artist and a poet in her own right too. An interesting story. She actually got pneumonia modeling for that Ophelia painting because she had to float in a bathtub to do it and the idiot painter didn't notice that the lamps that he'd had heating the water had gone out so she just laid there in the freezing cold ass water and got said (laughs) yeah but she was so committed to the art you know but going back to this actual collage it sounds so terrible I did not notice a giant spider in the OG painting I don't like it and a parrot carrying a marijuana leaf which in the OG painting a dove is carrying a white poppy, symbolizing laudanum, which was what Elizabeth Siddall overdosed on. Is Nils implying with his collage that she overdosed on weed? What? It's nonsense. And he's talking about the symbol of the spider represents industry and artistry, but hates the light, cannot survive in the light. And what? Couldn't no. survive in the limelight. It's a very ugly collage. I judge it as aggressively ugly. I think that's fair. This comment that Nils makes about everyone's death being a fulfillment. I'm just really not a fan of this explanation that Nils gives. It just rubs me the wrong way. And honestly, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, yeah, it's because it's extremely stupid. Yeah, it's barely coherent. I mean, the essence of it is that Edie brought this on herself by acting like a greedy bitch. And anyway, she should be glad someone loved her art enough to murder her for it. That's basically his stance. So I know that we were all looking forward to seeing Bram again, right? Oh, yay. So we were just talking about red herrings. There's even more. That's what this bit is, I'm pretty sure, is whenever we see Bram using that voice changer thing, whenever he snuck up behind Robin and scared her, right? Because that obviously is Flavia, mm-hmm. and that's where she got the idea from. Remember when we talked about the red herrings being louder than the real clues? It feels like this here because there's so much pointing to North Grove, but there are things that point to the Epcots, but... They're just so much more well hidden than everything happening here. Yeah. Bram is the real red herring in this chapter, I think. Nils, I don't credit at all, but Bram is terrifying. And I would absolutely buy him as being horrible enough to be enemy, even if the rest of it doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's not mature enough to be enemy. No, creepy. They're very different, though. This kid gives me the creeps. Bram says that he wants to show her some of Pez's art, which is in Josh and Edie's old room. And I have to say, I can't imagine living and going to sleep every night in a room with a six foot long painted penis inside of a (laughs) vagina. I just can't imagine it. No, weird. I have one that's a neon sign. That? Oh, (laughs) wow. I'm glad Edie at least made it clear that she was not happy about it. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have gone into the room again until it had been painted over. You think they have so much paint there. Like, why didn't someone just paint over it really quickly? Seriously. None of these artists could do something as plebeian as painting a wall. <laughs> unless it's a shitty mural. I guess <laughs> But not. I'm painting over somebody else's art. It's so stupid. It's so immature. I don't understand it. No, yeah, me neither. Anyway, near the giant dick painting... <laughs> 
is the passage about the concept of anime that we first saw when Robin first visited North Grove as Jessica Robbins. Is this supposed to be another red herring to make us think of Pez as a suspect? Yeah, I guess so. You know, there are things that I like about Pez, like him standing up to Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, or even his anger at that fan for making a spectacle of Edie's murder. But this is one of the things that I just really don't like about him. It's just immature and crude. Yeah, you know, on the scale of rating men, I wouldn't date him, but I also uh, wouldn't kill him with an axe, so. That's very extreme. Um, (laughs) That's an extreme scale. (laughs) But yeah, no, so he's in the middle. He's a middle man, medium to icky man. I think I've seen a few people say that Robin should actually date Pez. No, no. I know, I just, he's not a bad guy, but no, I just, Robin is way too grown up to be dating someone who draws penises on the wall yeah there's there's no way no i'll take murphy all day every day over that she's a clean person she's not gonna date someone who doesn't bathe it's not gonna happen i guess i'll take this back if strike draws the penis though because his (laughs) would be sophisticated in art oh of course (laughs) sure yeah he's not gonna like a picasso yeah I know what my next AI art prompt is going to be. I'm just kidding. I don't think we're going to see that happen. I don't think so either. Robin looks around the room and notices a dartboard on the wall, which is important for a couple of reasons. So one, that dartboard has a drawing of Inigo Upcott attached to it. And not only do we see that it's a drawing of Inigo, but we see that it was drawn by Katya and it specifically mentions that it's poorly drawn, which contradicts that earlier chapter when Robin encounters that drawing that she assumes is Katya's, but is actually Gus's. Yeah, good catch. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Nils's earlier references of the books in the bathroom was meant to remind us of everything Robin saw when she went snooping in the bathroom last time. Oh, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. This bit with the dead rat, though, holy oh shit. God. Ugh. So gross. Bram is the worst. Yeah, which is why the epigraph is about him. Mm-hmm. I know it's extremely unlikely, but it would be crazy if he came back as a suspect in a murder or something, because I would totally believe it. I would absolutely believe he'd show up as a murderer again. I mean, it's only a matter of time. Also, I know that Robin's been amazing this whole chapter at keeping her cool and, and not giving Bram the reaction that he wants, right? Because she did it a couple times. But with this rat thing, her shrieking and running away are completely understandable and justified reactions to this shit. You can't keep your cool when he's shoving a dead rat in your face. It's like, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm out. Yeah, he was trying to see whatever he could do to get a reaction from her. Mm-hmm. She lasted mm-hmm. a while, but yeah. yeah, nope. This chapter ends with Bram telling Robin that Zoe did it. And by it, we're obviously talking about what happened with Josh and Edie. I just had a horrible thought about how Bram is going to react when all the truth comes out because I bet he's going to be really interested in Gus. Oh kind my of god. Like idolize him. Oh you're right. Bram is going to be an enemy copycat in book 10. Yikes. Ready for chapter 67? Chapter 67. We're finally here. Ah this chapter. <laughs> and in this chapter Robin interviews Pez as Jessica Robbins. Yeah she does. So the epigraph for this chapter, now he sets me down as vexed. I think I've draped myself in woman's pride to a perfect purpose. And that's from Aurora Lee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I think that these lines speak to Robin's clever manipulations of Pez Pierce really well, because in this chapter, she embodies Jessica Robbins completely. (laughs) She is committed to the role, especially 
when she pulls back and acts cold to sort of draw him in and get him to talk i mean that's literally draped herself in woman's pride it's fantastic and the last line to a perfect purpose Mm -hmm. her purpose was to get information out of him and she sure did it she sure did she did a great job she did the job and she did it well (laughs) (laughs) all right the beginning of this chapter sees peasant robin leaving north grove and heading towards the pub and while they're walking, they talk about Mills. Mills is so strange, as we've said. I wonder how Strike would have responded to him had they met. Mm, you know? Yeah. All his ideas about art and death might have appealed to Leda, do you think? Yeah, I'm guessing if Mills was supplying the weed, then uh, she'd be open to hearing about it. Mm. You know, enthusing about his art. Robin finally gets a chance to send Strike a picture of the collage that Mills did and to give him a call. Imagine if you walked in the bathroom and heard Robin on the phone to Strike. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in that <laughs> oh phone my call. God. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining someone walking in on her describing the penis painting and then just like <laughs> walking right back out. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You're like, I can wait. I would have been like extra quiet because I would want to hear. Yeah, well, yeah I'd be like, this is intriguing. <laughs> Another little thing that I love is how well Strike Strike takes direction from her here and how he's oh, not threatened yeah. by it at all whenever she tells him to write down everything she remembers and to log into the mm-hmm. game to keep an eye on anime. Yeah, I love that too. I love the way he just says go. Yeah. Like, all right, I'm yeah. ready. Go. So good. So this description of Pez, close to Robin could smell Pez's body odor again. His bare arms were muscled, his fingernails dirty. Take away the jeans and t-shirt and he looked like a Caravaggio saint with his large, dark, mournful eyes and the tangle of black curly hair. You know how I was talking about the word penis being aggressively unsexy last episode? I do remember it. Yeah. <laughs> Has yeah. a scent here? Aggressively unsexy. because, yeah. <laughs> and, Which is a pity because at least physically, the rest of him sounds attractive. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I get that he's good looking, but he is not a character I find attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the personality leaves a lot to be desired. Agreed. Although I think that maybe the black curly hair is making Robin mm. a teensy bit more amenable to kissing him than she <laughs> might otherwise be, if you know what I mean. I don't know what 100%. you mean. I bet you're yep. right. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is just fine. Oh my God. And she's making out with the fake strike hair. And Strike is over here with fake Robin hair. <gasps> I just blew my own mind. And also the fact that murphy's hair is not unlike strike yeah yeah i love that there's a part here where robin is talking about mills describing pez as a western man and uh, it says ha did he said pez with a slight eye roll yeah i'm a western man small and dark robin almost said you're not small but bit the words back right before she could speak them she'd been thinking of height but the words might have been interpreted in a quite different way <laughs> oh, robin oh my god yeah, it's a funny part but i think the thing is that pez would have taken the opportunity to maybe make a joke or comment so there's mm-hmm. there's only so much acting robin could do i guess it's best not to push it yeah probably but yeah that is funny Pez talks about Mills once covertly insulting a man in a wheelchair at a party using his weird little race theory, and he himself getting into an argument with that same man about the Beatles later that night, which caused him to leave and never come back to North Grove. Imagine an argument over the Beatles being the thing that makes you storm out. <laughs> what a miserable man and ego is. Right? Right? Like, I can excuse racism, but I draw the line at mixing up <laughs> Beatles albums. And this is a clue. It actually mm. points back to chapter 38 when they were talking about anime making that Pete Best reference on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Robin leans in closer to look at Pez's tattoo, and he takes that opportunity to kiss her. Part of this reminds me of some of the first kisses I ever had with my first actual boyfriend, which is funny. Um, in the whole course of her life, Robin Ellicott had had a sum total of two men's tongues in her mouth, that of her husband, who she'd started dating at 17, and that of the boy she'd dated at 15, whose kisses had been sloppier than those of her family's Labrador. <laughs> Roundtree, better kisser. <laughs> uh, I remember gasping a little when this happened. Like, I couldn't believe that he kissed her. Yeah. I don't know why. It's surprising. <laughs> that it was. Should we talk about this, though? What are our opinions about Robin kissing Pez and getting all this information out of him? I mean, my biggest opinion is that reading it grosses me the hell out. Way too much description of tongues. It feels like as aggressively unsexy as the Madeline scene to me. But I think mostly when I was first reading this, I was just worried about Robin. Because I hated the idea that she might feel like she has to kiss this guy to get info out of him, right? Like she has to go mm. along with it. I didn't want that for her. And I think Strike would hate her feeling like that too. And But in the end, she seemed to be okay with it. Yeah, I, I don't think she's seeking it out, but yeah, she no. seems fine with it. Even, yeah. well, even more than fine, because we know in the next chapter, it says that her body hadn't minded much what her brain was doing. So I think we're seeing that missing physical touch coming into play that was mentioned mm. in Trouble Blood. Yeah, And we'll talk about this next time, why I think it's so important for her. But I guess the other question is about manipulating suspects and how far is too far. Yeah. I don't really have a problem with this, but it kind of reminds me of what Strike thinks later on, that people use each other all the time. Mm -hmm. It makes me kind of wonder what Pez's reaction when it all came out. Yeah, because would he have felt like violated? I don't think so. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know what I think about it either, to be honest. And I guess if he did feel that way, is it justified? And I Um, guess, yeah, I think so. I do not know. Would I have felt the same if Dev had made out with the woman when he was pretending to be the art dealer later? Yeah. Like, would I feel the same if he had had to make out with her? I don't know. Well, I mean, Dev's also married, though. Well, yeah. Well, but that's a thing between him and his wife, like what's okay to do on the job. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if Strike and Robin will ever have to have that conversation. I bet they will. I know. When Robin makes Pez laugh by saying men who earn a lot of money and drive big cars bore her. It makes me think of Matthew because she's absolutely telling the truth that they do bore her. Yeah. (laughs) Not (laughs) acting there. Not that Matthew drives a big car, but it's the type, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's the attitude. But she's thinking about how if this were a real date, she'd be doing really well, which is hilarious because literally earlier in the book, she was out together with somebody that she was making laugh. Hmm. But I guess that that would count as dwelling too much on her compatibility with Strike. So we can't have any of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how funny slash frustrating it is that Robin spends so much time in this book making fake relationships, right? Mm -hmm. With Pez Mm -hmm. and Zoe. I don't know. There's something about the disconnection in her real relationship with Strike and the online ones that aren't real. I don't know. Maybe it's nothing, but it just feels Hmm. like something. Pez's preoccupation with why Robin's not drinking really gives me the creeps here. Do you think that he's suspicious of her? I'm not sure if I feel like he's suspicious of her here, but I feel like after he finds out who she was, he probably is thinking about this night very differently. No, I just think he wants to get her drunk or tipsy, so she's more likely to sleep with him. Yeah. That's that's exactly what it is. Yeah. One other thing that I guess worries me a little bit, it worried me definitely the first time that I read this, was Robin walking away from her drink. 
Yes. Yeah. And leaving that behind, that is a super not safe thing to do. Don't yeah. do that. There's a couple times in this chapter, because yeah. first when she goes to the bathroom and he orders it for her, it's yeah. there when she gets there. And then when she goes up to the bar to get him another drink. That seemed so dangerous to me. And Robin would know not to do that. She's smart. So I don't know. I know that there were other people worried about this when they first read it too. Oh, I I super was. Yeah. I don't know what to think about it. I mean, do you think it's strange that Robin didn't think about this? Is it just one of the things that had to be for the character in the chapter? But I don't know. It feels strange. It feels incredibly strange to me as well. I guess it just needed to be that way, but. I don't know. Maybe because she's out in work mode and not, you know, having fun she's mode. She's being it feels a little bit more different. spontaneous. Yeah. Maybe she's doing what she thinks Jessica Robbins would do, but. But still. Yeah. It baffles me as well. I'm like, no way. I just hell. hope that that's not intentional and anything ends up happening to her later because she's not thinking about that. I don't think it will. I hope not. Yeah. That would be terrible. Anyway, moving off of that. Ooh, that's depressing. Pez's hand is described as hot and dry. While he and Robin are holding hands here, which just reminds me of Murphy's hand being described as warm and dry whenever he and Robin shake hands earlier in the book. And it almost feels like a Goldilocks situation. Where Strike's hand is going to be just right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about it, I'd much rather have a hot, dry hand than like a cold, wet one. Because that was just clammy and disgusting. Hot and dry. It's nice. It's a dry heat. I guess this is another thing that turns me off about Pez, though. Mm -hmm. When Robin goes out with Murphy, I highly doubt that he's going to just keep grabbing and touching and kissing her right away. No, I don't like the sexual aggression either. It's yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. But I think like Murphy's gonna be a pretty much a gentleman. So we talked about how there were a bunch of red herrings in the previous chapter, but I feel like there's a bunch of them in this one too. So Pez talks about visiting his father in Liverpool and he mentions that his father has motor neuron disease and this is a red herring because one of the things that we can infer about anime is that they care for somebody who's ill so points to that and then Pez also says he doesn't like cats and that he's allergic yeah I definitely noticed both of those things the other thing I noticed and it feels like I should have noticed this before so maybe I did and I've just forgotten but Wally and MJ are a good red herring for anime and Morehouse yeah because Pez thinks that anime is Wally and he says it like so confidently. Yeah. The growing conflict between both sets of friends. Mm-hmm. But also Pez says that Wally has a friend who can code. So if MJ can code, he's a good red herring for Morehouse. That is a pretty good red herring. Yeah. Not a single one of these people have said they all have different enemies. You know what I'm really interested in doing? And this might yeah. be a job for Katie. Yeah. If you're listening, I would like to know who each suspect thinks enemy is. Yeah, and draw it like a chart. I wonder if each person is suspected by someone different. Yeah, you know? I think I think it is. Except I, for Gus. I want to draw that out too. Pez starts to become upset when Robin brings up that Bram accused Zoe of killing Edie. And I have to say, Robin does a really, really great job here of manipulating his emotion about Edie, as well as his attraction to her to get him to talk more about Edie and then the circumstances surrounding her death. Yeah, there's a point in this book where Strike talks about the difficulty of going undercover, that you can't push certain topics, right? But it's one of my favorite things about seeing Robin undercover, seeing how she makes such quick decisions about who her character is, how they'd react, and how she gets onto the subject that she needs to be. Yeah. 
she so is, good. She is so, so brilliant at this. Sadly, I think that Strike might be too distracted by the long silences when listening to this interview <laughs> to, to fully appreciate and be happy for her talent. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. He's going to be thinking about something else. That's okay. I prefer that for this one time. I know. It's so much fun. So Pez says that it's obvious who Anime is. And like we were just mentioning a few minutes ago, he thinks that it's Wally Cardu. Yeah. And I mean, his reasoning makes sense on the surface. He clearly hasn't sat thinking deeply about it. He just is like, oh, it's totally that guy and moved on because he doesn't really care. But we know he's wrong, of course. This next bit is something I've seen criticized as far as how they narrowed down suspects in this book. Several of the things Pez had just said about himself fitted the tentative profile of Anime she and Strike had come up with. And yet she'd imagined that if she sat face to face with Anime, she'd feel it know it instinctively because the malevolence and sadism they've displayed during their long persecution of Edie Ledwell would leak from them, however cunningly they might try to conceal it. Pez Pierce might not have been her ideal drinking companion, but she couldn't imagine him devoting hours of his life to the game or to a relentless campaign of harassment conducted over Twitter. What is the criticism you've seen? That her ruling out Pez here is just too easy. Hmm. That the fact that she just says, oh, well... I just don't think that he's anime. Yeah, but they don't actually rule him out based on that. It's just her gut instinct that she's yeah, that's, feeling. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with Robin that you can just tell by sitting next to anime. I mean, I'm a little conflicted about it because we do all have that gut instinct when you sense someone is bad news, right? Mm-hmm. But they did see and speak with Gus and she just feels pity for him. So I don't know. Yeah. I agree with her about Pez though, because yeah. he's a lot of things that I don't like, but yeah. he does not seem like an evil guy. His defense of Edie back when we first meet him, I was always the thing that stood out to me. Yeah. I totally agree with her about her assessment of Pez. I agree. And she has logical reasons that she thinks it can't be him. She points out that it, he just doesn't fit the psychological profile in several key ways. She has specific ways, not just her like feeling. I didn't suspect Pez at all because no. he yeah, didn't feel same. like it to me either. Now, there's one line here that I'm already dying to react to as far as like Strike's reaction to it. It's the bit about Robin saying that she's not licensed, but on the bright side, she offers services you can't get on the NHS. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that line. And also want to go back to my therapy hope slash prediction because Mm -hmm. they're again talking about therapy. I'm betting that Strike would be eager to take advantage of Robin's non nhs (laughs) services (laughs) Uh, i bet he's gonna get some of that in the future yeah he is (laughs) it's not his leg but it's helping oh for sure (laughs) Mm -hmm. i was laughing my ass off when pez goes in for another kiss and robin thinks oh not again i was thinking the same thing same girl girl. control yourself dude come on Oh, yeah. Once Robin manages to detach herself from Pez, we get some context for how Pez knows about Tim Ashcroft, the pedophile, being a pedophile, and why he and Edie ended up having a falling out. Yeah, I love Pez's read on him because he totally nails him by showing what a hypocrite he is, especially because he calls him Timmy Superwoke. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Pez's insights into Ashcroft are what makes me like him. They're his best quality. And it's an interesting insight into Edie, too, isn't it? Yeah, Mm. I can really see why Pez fell out with her after this, because that was not the best choice by Edie. No, but the fact that she was insecure about her background and that she looked up to Ashcroft because of it, it rounds out her character for me a little. It's a serious flaw that she 
didn't believe him about Tim Ashcroft. I mean, it's it's hard to hear that someone you admire and are friends with is a total creep. Mm, so true. it's hard to know how anyone would react. But Hez is totally right that she shouldn't be bringing him around kids. Yeah, and no. yeah, this is a thing that makes me like him too. All right, to wrap up this chapter, Pez reveals a few things. One of them is that he and Edie used to be involved in a non-serious relationship, which I can't remember if it was confirmed anywhere, and then that they were also working on a project together. I don't think it was confirmed, but I do believe him because I don't think that he's a liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder how agree. Josh felt about coming after Pez. Ooh. Uh, and the other thing he talks about is the reason why Philip Orman wanted to meet with him at North Group was to ask him to hand over the ideas that he and Edie had worked on together. I mean, I hope Pez has success with whatever he does. Yeah. He gets mm-hmm. out of that commune. Yeah. yeah. I want to read his comic book. Sounds like a talented dude, even if he does need to learn what a washcloth and soap is. Yeah. And maybe chill out with, you know, drawing penises mauling on women. And... That too. Ooh, what a set of chapters, right? I know. Yeah. Those were so interview heavy. But interesting. But hey, do you guys realize that by the time this episode comes out, we're going to be under 100 days left until the running grave? Oh my god. That doesn't Incredible. feel real. Yeah, and also thank you to those of you who left us reviews and comments since our last episode. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were really nice. Some of those comments <laughs> were really fun to read about the last episode. <laughs> yes. I was a little nervous about that one, but yeah. they were pretty fun. Yeah, they were really great. All right, what are we doing next time? All right, next time we are doing chapters 68 through 72. And in the set of chapters, Strike listens to Robin's interview with Pez. The agency is sent a bomb and then Robin and Murphy discuss anime together. Oh, those are good chapters. Hell yeah, yeah they That's are. That's going to be fun. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.